Spoiler warnings! What is the spoiler warning for? Well, we're going to be discussing the entire history of the character Batman. Right. Up to a point. So kick your feet up and relax because we are not going to be talking about Matt Reeves, the Batman that is currently out. But we yep. have not we have not seen it yet, so we can't spoil it for you. So correct. We're going to talk about everything up until just before the Batman. Right. So you're good. Please don't ever feel you, you have to thank us for doing these spoiler alerts because you never will. <laughs> This is Central Control Room. Stand by. Welcome to it's you. It's been oh. a long time. <laughs> <laughs> we are coming back here. Yeah, we're doing a show. We're going to do a show about some stuff. Yeah, we're celebrating. Celebrating. Sort of. It's a celebration mm. of an episode of, of. Celebrate good times. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> you know, Derek, there's a party going on right here. A celebration. <laughs> That'll last at least this whole episode. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we're going to be, um, you know, in light of uh, The Batman coming out with uh, Robert Pattinson. Uh, yes. Taking the reins from yes. Ben Affleck. Yep. We're going to kind of discuss the history of The Batman. Cool. So I'm going to put out a disclaimer right now, Derek. Well, put it out or stand there and bleed. <laughs> I'm putting it. As we get into the history of this shit and we're going, uh, starting in the very early beginnings or whatever, I'm a novice. I'd call myself a novice and I'd yeah. call yourself an expert because mm. you're a well, comic book person who reads comic books. Well, I'm sure there are more learned persons than myself. Yeah. No, I'm saying in, in the room. In the room. For yes. sure. But at, between our little group of two, yes. Right. Yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah. I'm a I'm a comic book fan. You right. are just a fan of yeah, the character of the out of the movies. Yeah, yeah pretty right. much, yeah. So in the beginning, I might be a little more listening and, and remarking than putting in some information because you're going to have all the information, and I'm not. Mm, yeah, I kind of do, don't I? Wait till the Star Wars episode. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But for this particular show, we won't have to wait for another bad time or bad channel because we're going to do it. This time, this channel. Correct. Once upon a time, Tim, there was a gentleman in 1935 mm. by the name of Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. Okay. And what Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson basically did was start in 1935 a uh, publication called National Allied Publications. 
Now, back in this time, uh, they, they had something similar to comic books, but basically what uh, publications did was they took a popular comic strip from the newspapers. They would take a bunch of their little adventures from the comic strip, put them all in one little booklet, mm-hmm. and then whoever was a fan of that character could go out and get that little booklet of their favorite character of their previous adventures from the newspaper. Uh. What Malcolm Wheeler came up with was, why do we have to use old clippings like this? Right. Why can't we create our n- some new characters? and put them in a booklet. What time period was this? So this was in 1935. He launches National Allied Publications, and the first comic he puts out with that publishing company is called New Fun Comics. It then eventually morphs into New Comics and then New Adventure, and then finally Adventure Comics. Okay. And through these publications that he's releasing in comic book form, uh, he's bringing in a lot of artists that will become very well-known as the years go on. Well, I mean, well-known to us now, probably not so much then, Mm -hmm. but uh, two people that he brings in is Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. These two guys are most notably known for creating Superman. Oh, wow. See, I'm from, um, well, pretty far away. Another galaxy, as a matter of fact. As we make our way towards 1937, Action Comics becomes a part of the National Allied Publications, and when Action Comics is introduced in issue number one, that, of course, introduces Superman to the world. Mm -hmm. That becomes a phenomenon, and all the other publication companies want to market off of this phenomenon, basically. And so uh, one of the things that ends up happening to this guy, Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, is he has some financial issues in 1937. And one of the last publications he has, uh, National Allied Publications, puts out, Mm -hmm. aside from Action Comics, he does one called Detective Comics. So what's going on in the 1930s? There's a lot of crazy shit happening. Yeah, it's not a happy time. Nope. (laughs) Certainly is not. And as we get further into them, things get even more worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's it's kind of very similar to the 2020s. (laughs) As far as like doom and gloom and the world's going to end. Right. But yeah, at the end of the 20s, you have the uh, big giant stock market crash that Mm -hmm. basically kicks in the Great Depression, right? Right. Plus, it early early on in um, Germany, there in the early part of the 30s, uh, you have um, this guy named Adolf Hitler. Yeah, he's starting his whole ball of wackadoodle, and um, right. Oh, and then also the good thing that came, the one good thing that came out of the early 30s is uh, with uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, first term, he basically put the axe on uh, prohibition. I call definite attention to the fact that just as soon as the democratic platform pledges enacted into a law modifying the Volstead Act, a thought... And everybody's allowed to drink again because yeah, he's thinking, right, right selling alcohol is going to help generate revenue for the depression and all right. that shit. So, so right, yeah. So there, there's some good things that definitely come out of the 30s, but unfortunately, <laughs> it's one of those things that kind of flip flop a lot. And on, unfortunately, the flip flop lands on bad shit more than good yeah, stuff because right, then right. from 34, 36, 39, you have the Dust Bowl happening in three waves, yeah, and that's right. just devastating. Massive droughts, and then it's causing the people to flee Middle right. America to. Uh, 
about the coasts. Right. And so then, you know, you'll, you'll have overpopulation in areas that weren't expecting a lot of people to go mm-hmm. because the people are just trying to get out of those Dust Bowl areas that it's just, it's like you barely survive there. It was almost surreal, the dust. There's nowhere you can run. You can try to get out of it, but it's as if it follows you, follows you, follows you. You can't escape it. Yeah, so that's happening in the mid to late 30s, of course, and then that has to be building a lot of, oh my God, how bad are things gonna get in a lot of people's minds Mm -hmm. throughout that time. So so a lot of the escapism of the time is starting to become very popular. You know, you had your vaudeville shows that are traveling around, and also, of course, you know, silent films, and then we get talkies around this time. Yeah, the radio shows are real popular, and and, uh, obviously it's pre-television, so, um, and then, yeah, reading too, so. That brings us full circle back to comic books and why comic books are doing so well at the time, or decently well. So Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, as we talked about, that did National Allied Publications, mm-hmm. uh, he apparently wasn't all that great with money, and he, he came into some financial strengths, and it just got worse. So by 1937, by the time Detective Comics are launched, he's already in really big financial trouble, so he ends up having to sell his part of the business oh. to one of his partners that he had to bring in. And so that partner, Jack Leibowitz, ends up taking over National Allied Publications, and Malcolm Willer Nicholson goes his own way and unfortunately he wasn't a part of the company by the time it really started to bloom and that's very unfortunate because yeah. if he could have hung in there just a little longer but he was just having so much cash problems can't dilly dally with my cash funds here right right exactly so I mean he wasn't totally a part of National Allied Publications which would go on to become DC at the time when it really started to hit big and, and comic book heroes started to become a mainstay but I thought he was worth definitely mentioning because who knows if we would have had comic books today if it wasn't for that man. (laughs) Right, right, right. It was a collaboration that was so exciting to discuss a story and a few days later to see it all drawn on boards then a month later to see it in a book and to know that kids are reading these and enjoying them. So, uh, Action Comics, the very first issue with Superman, ends up being published in June of 1938. Right. And that, of course, as I said, spawns this whole new direction in how other publication companies are going to start making new comics, for one, but also superhero comics. Yeah, right. Of course, not long after Superman comes out, you have characters coming along like the Crimson Avenger in 1938, and you have, uh, well, Marvel puts out the Submariner in 1939, and then that same year, of course... A young lad by the name of Bob Kane, with the help, a lot of help, apparently, of Bill Finger, they come up with a character by the name of Batman. Right, right. So one day I went over to the editor, Vincent Sullivan, and I said, hey, uh, would you like to uh, take on another super-duper character? And he said, sure, uh, we're doing great with Superman, can you come up with something? I said, for 1500 a week, I can come up with anything, believe me. So right there in May of 1939, we get introduced to The Batman in Detective Comics number 27. Okay. Have you read this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, It's 
pretty much the same Batman that we know and love from modern comics. I mean, it's changed a lot. His look is similar. He's still got the gray, black, blue, yellow. Right, uh, right. But uh, the, the look has changed a bit, especially in the cowl headpiece. Um, but it's nice. It's really cool to look back on. Because so. these were these detective comics were essentially like pulp novels, right? right? In a way yeah. where there was violence and all that kind of stuff, at least as much as there could be in the 30s. And then... Uh, so then they decide to spice it up with this guy in the suit, pretty much, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so, basically, what they're doing is keeping with what the comic was, was a lot of the old-timey detective-y comics of the gangster pictures type, too, all mixed together. It was a little more violent, so uh, Batman does kill in it. He tosses a guy, I believe, in like a vat of acid in the end of it. But, uh, you know, Bob Kane, Bill Finger, and Bill Finger is another big controversy thing here mm-hmm. because he with was... the drawings, right? He right. Did. Yeah, yeah. He was... So, Bob Kane... Kane originally had a drawing that had Batman when he envisioned him in like a red suit and some and a Robin mask. Mm-hmm. Didn't look anything like our modern day interpretation. So Bill Finger kind of looked at it and basically said, if this guy's called the Batman, he doesn't look anything like a bat right here. Make him more bat light. So give him this kind of cape and give him this uh, mask that covers his whole face and all of this stuff to make him look, of course, more bat like. <laughs> right. So, right. yeah, we in that time, 1939, Batman is introduced with, you know, pretty much a darker vibe just because of the time. So let me ask you then, if since you've read this first book, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I know you said it, you had, it had a vibe of kind of darkness and all that stuff, but right. was the whole Bruce Wayne thing involved? Like, was the, from the get-go, he was a secret millionaire billionaire thing? Yes, yeah. So uh, in that first issue, at the very end, we do see that the Batman character is Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. In, in the issue, he actually piles around with James Gordon, uh, Commissioner Gordon, and is invited for some reason to some homicide investigation. It's pretty <laughs> funny he's walking around while this dead body's there and they're asking questions and stuff but yeah by the end of that issue it does state that the batman is indeed bruce wayne kind of thing okay it's not until detective comics number 33 where we learn why bruce is doing this thing and of course in that issue it tells uh, that he witnessed his parents death at the hands of a mugger and then it also talks about his vow to avenge his parents death and that of course leads to his batman life yeah right so that was a telling that early into the game but the full story as we know it now didn't show up until Batman number 47, which was in June of 1948. Mm-hmm. Now, it skewed a bit from the original setup of the parents' death. Thomas and Martha's demise in the 1948 issue is changed to Thomas being shot and then Martha dying from a weakened heart due to the shock of seeing her husband being killed. Uh, okay. So that's changed a little bit. She's not shot. And also, we get the name of the mugger who kills them, and that is Joe Chill, which is something that will stay in comic book lore from here on out. Joe Chill. So there's a lot as time goes on and the progression, the popularity of the character gets bigger and bigger and bigger. There's a lot brought to the table that builds a better picture of the man behind the mask. Yeah, and that's what I want to ask. Um, does he have the gadgets and the fancy car well, all the way back in 1939? Or does it that stuff get added on later? Right, yeah, okay, so uh, in that first issue, he is using, like, rope to climb up onto rooftops. I think he might even be using some gas pellets. Um, Then, though, as time goes on, they start adding to his arsenal. So the Batarang ends up showing up in comics in Detective Comics issue number 31 in 1939. So just a few issues after the 27 when he premiered, there comes the uh, Batarang. Right. And uh, as far as the Batmobile... (laughs) 
So Batman did indeed drive a vehicle in that first issue, uh, but it was just like a regular car, like a, a red coupe of whatever vehicle that was for the time. Right. It wouldn't be until 1941 that the Batmobile title would be unveiled along with the very Bat-like version of what we would all come to know as the Batmobile. So I guess before we get into the first serial, movie serial, right. which was only a few years later, mm-hmm. um, Robin is in those. So when, when in the comics, does Robin come in pretty quick? So, uh, of course, the character of Batman was really popular when it was first introduced, and that just only grew as time moved on. So, like anything, uh, the powers that be that were over this burgeoning success would uh, would start to assess the viability of the character and basically come to the conclusion that, hmm, kids really like this comic book, you know? So, (laughs) how about we make a kid character to be Batman's sidekick? So, with that in mind, Robin is born in the comic pages in Detective Comics number 38. Eight, and that was in April of 1940. It'll be a cold day in August when we're scared of you, Riddler. So, I mean, the minute that they bring the character of Robin into the comic books, it starts right there to cause the Batman character to take on a more tender, lighthearted personality. Mm-hmm. And so that would end up happening over a period of time in the comic books. But th- that same spring in 1940, Batman gets his own comic book named after him, and the first issue would introduce the Joker and Catwoman. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's... When did Catwoman get so cute? (laughs) And so, just looking back on it like this, you can start to see how Bill Finger and Bob Kane are building this world that will grow into this huge comic universe and that we'll later see incorporated in endless interpretations in TV and movies. Right. So, I mean, it's just, it's really interesting to watch that character of Batman just in the little time that we've been talking about go from lone, dark vigilante to the ever growing kid product. Right, right, right. Now you can get one of five super cool Batman toys when you buy a Taco Bell kids meal. Well, I guess what, before we move on, the, the, my other question on the origins of this is because it's called Detective Comics, mm-hmm. is he a detective? Uh, so, yeah, he, he's kind of being a sleuth in the uh, first few issues, piecing together the puzzles or finding out clues to murders and stuff like that. So, um, if you think of the popular characters of the time, like Sam Spade, who was a very popular detective, fictional detective, that is, and of course Sherlock Holmes, which is a character that came before both of them. Gentlemen, I'm not accustomed to working in the dark. I bid you good night. Mr. Holmes! That makes a big imprint on these uh, characters going forward. So, Batman has traits of these detective characters that are popular of the time. Mm-hmm. And this is also a very popular time for Warner Brothers gangster pictures. Come out and take it, you dirty yellow-bellied rider. I'll give it to you through the door. And gangsters in real life, of course, because real life fascination at the time is on gangsters. So like the exploits of Bonnie and Clyde and Babyface Nelson and John Dillinger are all names right. very well known by the people because their names are in the papers all the time. Right. So for sure, all of that stuff played a big role in the villains of the time in the comics and also Batman's detective sleuth-like abilities. Hmm, okay. I went back and uh, reviewed some of the uh, other movies that I haven't seen and since they were new, pretty much. Um, but while I was looking for it, 
I came across the serials, you know, and they and, and somebody had taken them, put them on YouTube, and put them all end to end, and you can't even <laughs> tell. It looks like one big four and a half hour movie. Right. And there's there's the one from 1943, mm-hmm. and then there's the one the other one was from 1949, I believe. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Well, the early the early 40s one there, that one is definitely playing on the fun version of the Batman and Robin comics at the time. Come along, fella. You're going with us to the Bat's Cave. Uh, but it does incorporate a villain that wasn't in the comics that uh, I think they were trying to cater to the adults because uh, they figured, well, kids are going to be there. They'll be all in just because it's Batman. But adults, let's give them something. And due to the aggressions of the war, they end up making that villain an Asian. Right. But uh, one important note about the early 40s uh, serials is that in the comics at that time, the Batcave wasn't really established. At one point early in the comics, Bruce actually keeps the Batmobile in a barn outside the mansion. So that was pretty fun. So this serial, what it does is it introduces uh, the Batcave, which the comics would later go on to adopt. Yeah, but it was funny. They they capture one of the bad guys' uh, goons and bring them to the Batcave. And it's like inside the cave is literally just a cave with a a very nicely carved wood desk. (laughs) That's all there is. Right, right. It's just sitting in the middle of the thing. And they're, right. And they're like, well, all right. Well, you know, we'll just leave you here for now. And you, there's like all the shadows of bats flying around. The guy's like looking up. Wait a minute. Don't leave me here alone. I'll talk. I'll tell you everything I know. <laughs> but I'm like sure, really... like, again, looking at it from the eyes of back then, I bet you fans of Batman would go see that. And they're like, oh, this is so fucking cool. <laughs> 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 yeah, right. And I mean, you know, you can't look at even the costume. is just horrible. Oh, like, you, they have better things for eight-year-olds at Spirit Halloween yes. stores right now. Yes, yeah, the costume <laughs> he's wearing. And I even feel like the 40, the early 40s one, the World War II one, is right. better than the one in 49. Oh, yeah. You know. Batman, you've done a great job uncovering the wizard. Our citizens owe you a debt of gratitude. Robert and Miss Vale have done their share, too. Because the one in 49, the ears are, like, going in different yeah, directions. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, the, and the, the point, that the part that covers his nose, it, right. it just it's barely, like, it's almost like it's taped on. Right. And it looks like it's made of, like, terry cloth, like, out of towels and shit. <laughs> right. You know, like, his cape and his gray, well, he's wearing the gray. You can't expect billionaire Bruce Wayne to afford that much. Jeez. <laughs> oh, yeah. One thing that we should mention in this 1943 serial, uh, Batman is being portrayed by Lou. Wilson and Robin is being portrayed by Douglas Croft and they both do play it with a bit of whimsy for sure and Robin does look like a young kid in that one mm-hmm. he looks like he's like 16 17 years old right yeah Bruce almost seems kind of happy-go-lucky right yeah versus in the 1949 one the guy playing Bruce who is uh, Robert Lowry is uh, the guy playing Batman uh, Johnny Duncan plays Robin that portrayal is a lot more no joking around we're just here right. for business the funny thing to me though is obviously these are probably lo- relatively low budget productions you right. know because it's aimed for kids and all that stuff and um the one in the early 40s was uh he's just driving around in a big ass cadillac right. and alfred alfred is driving him around a lot of the times right. too and they're like changing clothes in the back seat of this cadillac <laughs> right. you know what i mean right and then it's even funnier as you get to the 49 one he's literally driving just a brand new 49 mercury convertible <laughs> right which is a sweet ass car by the way but right. there's probably like 400 of them on the road if you know what i mean that <laughs> right. car sold like gangbusters okay well uh, uh the 1940 
43 serial has a few things special going for it. One, it's the first appearance of Batman on film. And two, it's the first appearance of a DC hero on film. So he, uh, Batman even beats Superman to the big screen. Yeah, and I guess we should say on the um, early 40s one, mm-hmm. if you're uh, at all sensitive to racism, right. <laughs> you might want to skip it out. Right. Because you got to figure, too, at this time, this is we're right in the heat of World War II. Right. And the bad guy is a white man playing a Japanese guy with right. the, the accent and the, you know, the kind of teeth and right. makeup over his eyes and all this stuff. And it's, yeah, yeah. you watch it now and you're like, ooh, ouch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, right. and they're saying there's, there's derogatory remarks made during the feature. Yeah, there's and, some, there's a lot of like, uh, yeah, derogatory remarks about Little Tokyo and stuff like right. that. And you're like, yeah. oh man. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's a product of the time and they right. were, you know, enemy of the state. <laughs> but mm. it's not a Justification. No, no, not at all. It's just uh, just a warning letting everyone know, just in case you want to watch it. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're going to watch it, just be, <laughs> right. be wary of that. Of course, yeah. And no matter what you're watching, we always like to uh, kind of make the bed before we jump in, which is why we discuss some of the things that are going on in the time period that we are discussing, whatever film we're talking about. So in between these two serials, is there anything developing in the comic part of it? Okay. Well, let's go back before the first serial and talk about what builds in through that serial into the next serial and a little past it. That way we can catch up on everything in the comics. Okay. Over. Why, my dear delusional Dark Knight, it hasn't even begun. So as we briefly mentioned before, it just needs a little bit more time to breathe. Uh, in the spring issue of Batman number one, that was in 1940, the Joker was introduced. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joker was created by Bill Finger, Jerry Robinson, and Bob Kane. Okay. So at the time that they're making this, I mean, who would have known at that time that they were making arguably one of the most famous villains, not just in comic book, but in all media for all time. I mean, it's crazy. The Catwoman is not like the others. I'll show you how to clip Batman and Robin's wings. I will prevail. And also in that same issue that the Joker is introduced, we get, of course, the Catwoman or the cat, as she's called throughout that same issue. Now, it's in a separate story, mind you. She's not in the same exact story that the Joker's in, but it's just in that same issue. Mm -hmm. And that character, of course, has gone through so many redesigns in comics and TV and film and all of that stuff. It's just incredible to me how different she looks sometimes, but still very similar to the personality traits that remain firmly intact from that original comic. But yeah, right there, Batman issue number one, Catwoman appears. It's just crazy. Now, she wouldn't be wearing her costume. That wouldn't show up until issue number three in July of 1940. Your time is almost up, Batman. Live by fear. In September of 1941, issue number three of a comic called World's Finest is where we get the introduction of the character, the Scarecrow. (laughs) Then in December of 1941, in Detective Comics number 58, we get the introduction of the character, the Penguin. The Batman and the Penguin are going to be partners in plunder. Then in February of 1942, something really iconic happens. Batman finally can be summoned if he is needed. The bat signal is not a beeper. The bat signal shines for the first time in Detective Comics number 60. 
The August issue in 1942 of Detective Comics number 66 introduces us to Harvey Kent. Why did you say that name? Later renamed Dent, of course. The issue also shows Harvey's nastier side when Two-Face is born. Heads or tails. In the April-May issue of Batman number 16 in 1943, Alfred joins the Wayne Manor household. That almost goes without saying, doesn't it, sir? If we go all the way up to 1948 in the October issue of Detective Comics number 140, Batman faces off with a new villain named the Riddler. You know what happens to gate crashers? They have to match wits with the Riddler. Also, that pesky photojournalist Vicky Vale shows up in the comics and brings love and temptation to our boy Bruce in Batman number 49, released in 1948, in the October-November issue. I don't know who you think you are. You hurt me. So I'm saying all of that stuff basically to answer your question. Mm -hmm. What is happening at this time is that Bill Finger, Jerry Robinson, and Bob Kane are essentially populating the world that we will all, as Batman comic book fans at this time, will come to know as the Batman universe. Okay. All of these iconic characters are being birthed on the comic pages and setting up the characters and lore that will go on to last a lifetime. And remember, this is just a small portion of time that we're talking about so far. Not even 10 years has passed since the debut of Batman in Detective Comics number 27. So a lot has been done to set up this world. Right, okay. Now, as we talked about briefly on our That's Kid Stuff episode, Superman had a radio show back in the 40s. Actually, it debuted in 1940, and right. it went all the way up to 1951. Mm -hmm. Once again, we bring you the adventures of Superman. Of that show, and as far as episodes go, there was 2,088 episodes. Oh, wow. That's just craziness. This looks like a job for Superman. Anyway, in some of those episodes throughout the years, Batman and Robin would actually make appearances. Oh, so we got the backdoor radio show. Right, yeah, exactly. I wonder where this passageway leads to, Kent. I imagine we're under the amusement park now, Batman. So, reportedly, uh, when the actor who voiced Superman on the show, which his name was Bud Collier, when he needed some time off or couldn't come in for an episode or something like that, Superman in the episode would be busy or missing or something like that. So then Batman and Robin would come in and help with the issue or adventure of the episode. Mm. Of those episodes where Batman and the Boy Wonder stopped by, Batman was voiced by three different actors over the years. What do we do, Batman? We can't do anything, Robin. It's, it's all over for us. So as we push out of the 40s and into the 50s, there's going to be a bit of an interest peak in superhero things across the board. Mm -hmm. And then basically that's going to plateau and then that's going to start to fall a bit. Mm -hmm. And that's not only in Batman comics that's starting to take a dip in, in sales a bit, but also Superman and even Captain America after World War II is over gets canceled. Mm -hmm. So superheroes in this time are having an unsure footing in the uh, sales market. Why do we fall, Bruce? So we can learn to pick ourselves up. So with all of that happening, of course, the comic publication companies are having to think of something new that the fans haven't seen before. Because at that time, it's the same old thing. A villain's introduced, a hero comes in, saves the day. Mm -hmm. And one of the answers that DC comes up with is, all right, so we have this Superman guy, and we have this Batman guy, and we've introduced a comic called The World's Finest in 1940, featuring the Justice Society of America. Now, during the run of World's Finest Justice Society, Batman and Superman were both on 
honorary members, of course, but never really shared together a one-on-one big adventure. Right, right. As a team, like an allied force. That was, of course, until comic book sales started to drop in the 50s. So DC then decides, you know what? Fans might want to see these two iconic heroes meet. And in May of 1952, in Superman number 76, Batman and Superman team up, and they were right. It was a huge hit. Right. And if that wasn't enough to give the comics a jump start that they needed, just a few months later in September of 1952, Superman would get his own TV show, The Adventures of Superman with George Reeves. All right. And now, another exciting episode in The Adventures of Superman. Again, my boy Superman forged a new ground for superheroes. I digress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, this show not only gives just Superman comics a huge boost, but reportedly all comic sales go up due to the superhero mania going on at this time right right yeah um there was also on the other end like stuff we talked about from our creep show episode ec comics which got into a lot of gory scary ghouly right. headless people stuff and then there's a lot of crime detective comics that are also mm-hmm. really kind of pushing the envelope of obscenity really right and um of course there's always that conservative uh batch of folks and uh-uh. yeah and politicians that are going to be like fuck that shit you know <laughs> not around my children <laughs> what happens is is uh this german-born psychiatrist guy Frederick Wortham yeah this dude ended up being the poster child for this whole movement of anti-comics right. uh, because he wrote a book called uh, seduction of the innocent yep superman itself is the symbol of force power and violence that has had an enormous influence which one cannot possibly exaggerate and the use not only of this country but of the use of many other countries you see 1954 right in 1954 he wrote this book and that book was used as kind of like the um tool to basically castrate the comic book uh, industry right <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah comic books at the time were moving along trucking along going well but then yeah. this guy comes in writes this book and yeah and and uh, those who have a problem with comic books hitch a ride onto this book and it starts getting talked about in the government and all this stuff uh, uh, what ends up happening is is the uh, comic book publishers kind of get together and basically say, we need to kind of regulate ourselves before the government steps in and reg- regulates us for this because we can see this coming, you know, right. with this Seduction of the Innocents book and uh, this Dr. Frederick Wortham. Right. So l- later on that year in 1954, the comic book publishers, like I said, band together and create the Comics Code Authority. Right. CCA. And the little insignia you see at the top of the, the comics. Yep. Yeah, right. And it's, in a sense, self-regulating, really cleaning up the act. And, and uh, EC Comics, who did Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror, ended up being one of the many, I think, there was somewhere between 15 and 20 comic book publishers before the Comic Code Authority kicked in and then afterwards most of them were so smutty i guess that they couldn't survive and uh more than half of them lost and then i know a few more were lost in the 60s and then by the time we get to now obviously it's marvel dc and right yeah there's been a few little smaller ones come out but no one quite as big as marvel and dc they're the big boys right (laughs) 
And so what this does is essentially put rules and restrictions on all comic books across the board. So like no killing or harm to women or guns and violence. So what they do to get around this is they go really kid friendly. So Batman and Robin will have to battle henchmen and bad guys that are essentially aliens or robots. Mm -hmm. That way it's outlandish and can't be taken as real violence. Right. The Joker becomes a silly clown character. Pals, bangs, and whams end up taking up most of the comic panels to imply punches and such so you don't have to worry about seeing an actual punch. Right. And this opens the door for the more quasi sci-fi-ish villains to emerge. Yeah. So two years after the code goes into effect, that's when the golden age of comic book ends, which is 1938 to 1956. And thus, with all the kid-friendly toned-down violence and darkness, begins the silver age of comics. Right. And this comic age will definitely play into the camp that will rear its head in Batman's future. Oh, right. Okay. And until we meet again, boys and girls, know that wherever evil lurks in all its myriad forms, I'll be there with the hammers of justice to fight for decency and defend the innocent. Now, before we leave the 50s completely, we do have to mention a villain that was introduced in 1959 in the February issue of Batman 121, and that's Mr. Freeze. But at that time, he was called Mr. Zero. <laughs> Lame. That's right, buddy. Jail is one cooler I want no part of. Get it, Frost? <laughs> so then, Tim, let's go ahead and track on forward up to January 12th of 1966, and a special little TV show hits the airwaves called Batman. Batman and Robin, intrepid pursuers of evil, fearless warriors against crime. <laughs> see, Tim, a television network by the name of ABC at that time had recently purchased the rights to the Batman property. And so they went to a television producer who was like 57 at the time named William Dozier to turn Batman into a TV show. Yeah. ABC had recently bought the rights to Batman, not knowing exactly what to do with it or how to do it, just having a kind of seat-of-the-pants hunch that it might be a good television series. And he asked me if I would be interested in producing it. And I was a little taken aback because I had never had a Batman comic book in my hands. So I bought about a dozen of them and I took them on the plane with me and flew back to Hollywood. So then after a day or so, the fairly obvious idea, it seems obvious now at least, to make it so square and so serious and so cliche ridden and so overdone and yet do it with a certain elegance and style that it would be funny. That it would be so corny and so bad that it would be funny. So there are a lot of things that are happening around the time in 1966 when Batman the TV series comes out that it just seems like it's the perfect ingredients for it to become part of the pop culture phenomenon of the time and still is mixed in with that to this day. Yeah. <laughs> So in the late 50s, pop art starts to become kind of known in uh, Europe and then, of course, in America. Right. And then it has a slow build, I, I believe, all the way up till about 1964. And that's when Andy Warhol does his uh, Campbell Soup art. Mm -hmm. And that really becomes known and that locks in on pop art. Right. 
Holy Hollywood. And then, of course, I mean, if you take into account all of the TV shows that are out at this time, I mean, take 1963 to 66 when Batman the TV show premieres, all the shows that are out around that time, like F Troop and Hogan's Heroes and Bewitched and I Dream of Genie, all mm-hmm. of these shows have one big thing in common, I think, and that's camp. They're mm-hmm. all really campy. And also what's going on at this time, too, is variety shows are huge at this time. And mm-hmm. so the corniness and campiness of the variety show mixes in with all of the campiness that's going on, like Beverly Hillbillies and I Dream of Genie. Like I said, all of those shows are just put into a big vat and mixed around like ingredients along with pop art at the time. And then out comes Batman, the TV series. Mm. I mean, it's just a perfect time for this thing to go on to become like the cultural phenomenon that it did and still is. Yeah, exactly. And it's really weird how this show hit that nerve at this time where they were playing to that campiness and so all of the adults that tuned in were in on the joke. It was Mm -hmm. camp and not to be taken too seriously. So the adults were watching for that and then the kids were tuning in just because it was Batman and they were like, kids were looking at it at a whole another light. They were looking at it like, oh my God, this is so cool. This is dead serious (laughs) stuff. Right. The Riddler contrives his plots like artichokes. You have to strip off spiny leaves to reach the heart. Then the world gets introduced to Adam West, right? (laughs) Right, yeah. Adam West is introduced as Batman. He wins the role over, I think, Lyle Wagner. And Lyle Wagner would go on to be in another DC show like a decade later, which was Wonder Woman. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Adam famously has this weird vocal cadence that he mm-hmm, does. Right. It's very unique to him. Well, I, I think most younger people might know him as the mayor from Family Guy up till he passed away, of course. But he has that same Batman-esque voice that he uses. Yeah, he sounded just like Batman, yeah. I'll sing, too. Adam West, Adam West, a little bit softer now. And I, I think the the brilliance of what Adam did with it, because if you watch, there are tests for Lyle Wagner and a few other people that were auditioning for the Batman role. And what he does with it that none of them do is he has the perfect amount of like ridiculousness Mm-hmm. in his delivery with the same amount of like deadpan seriousness <laughs> and it comes off to where it plays perfectly for adults that are in on the wink yeah. and kids who are like wow that's Batman talking yeah, and exactly. that's what's right. really great about setting not only that character but the atmosphere of the show yeah <laughs> foolish girl you were so bent on your murderous scheme you failed to notice in the Batmobile I burnt off your revolver's firing pin with a hidden bat laser beam but it's really well rounded cast because you also have Burt Ward as Robin bringing his holy this and holy that. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Holy caffeine. Holy bijou. Holy hypotheses. Holy oversight. Holy flypaper. Holy uncanny photographic mental processes. And the villains, of course, we'll get to in a bit, but uh, we also are introduced in the show to bat gadgets and bat vehicles. So that brings us to the first real, like, hardcore Batmobile. I mean, they had had stylized cars, as you said, in the right. comics, but this brings up the um, the one we kind of all know from our childhood, at least mm-hmm. our, well, this older generation. Right, yeah. Right. This car was designed by the Barris Brothers uh, custom car shop. They, these guys have been hot-rodding cars, mostly Sam Barris, who, but George Barris is the name behind it all. Mm-hmm, but right. Sam, Sam Barris was the actual kind of talent behind customizing of the cars. Mm, okay. 
And, but Sam dies in 1967, pretty shortly after oh. this car is made and all that. But uh, what they did is they took an old uh, Lincoln Futura concept car that was from, uh, I think, the late 50s. Oh. And it, as well as they really did, it was white when they when, when Lincoln Ford showed this as a Lincoln Futura. But it had the double bubble top and the huh. exaggerated fins and all that stuff. And the crazy. Fo- yeah, and the, and the kind of weird-looking eyebrow headlights mm. that it had. It looks just like the Batmobile. <laughs> wow. But it's white and, and doesn't have a big jet engine in the back. And so so right. <laughs> somehow George and Sam acquire this car from Ford, I guess, or maybe a, it was third-party owner at that point. Oh, okay. I don't know. Hmm. And they do their magic on it and kind of, um, you know, they paint it black with the orange pinstripes around the edges and put mm. the cool wheels on it. And <laughs> right, the, yeah, yeah. The, the cop light and the big jet engine, the looking thing in the back. Yeah. Yeah. I fucking loved this car as a kid. Oh, God, me too, yeah. I mean, I remember watching this show and all of the gadgets and vehicles that they end up showing that he has in the show, I loved, but the Batmobile, that was just, <laughs> yeah. it was just something really special when you saw it. Yeah, I loved I it. I remember having the Matchbox car of it and all that. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, me too. And my dad was a pretty much kind of like a hot rodder in the early 60s, and, and so I kind of grew up in, in car culture and all that stuff, and we would go to car shows in the late 70s even. And okay. <laughs> the 70s were a very dark time for us car people because there were no <laughs> cool cars. <laughs> and so what had happened was is it became hip to soup up your van man you know you, <laughs> right. you, you turn your van into looking like a shark and then right. you know you'd have like spooky ghosts inside <laughs> that was what like 90 percent of the car shows were when i was like six seven years old <laughs> but you know by like 79 especially once dukes of hazard comes out oh, the, right. there, there were the celebrity cars that right. would kind of tour around with these car shows and, and it was the batmobile and the general lee that were right. always in the corner and you'd be just like i can't wait to see the fucking batmobile <laughs> and the general lee running up past all these other right. vans with with dry ice in them <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right yeah yeah no i i mean i looking at the the batmobile even now from the 60s show it's so cool and it's interesting how it represents the show so well because it's kind of over the top a little and it's poppy with colors and it's kitschy and the I've, I've, i've always heard about this and i don't know if it's true or not but i heard that the one used in the very in the very because they obviously they made replicas of it to have multiple cars right but there was one that was supposedly velvet instead of black paint to look like uh, a bat material and i've never actually seen a picture of that car yeah i don't know if that's like urban legend or something like that you know being a car guy i should look into that for the legitimacy right but uh, i feel like i had i had heard that over the years and maybe Maybe it's all bullshit, but because mm. all the ones I've ever seen were all copies anyway, and they were just like glossy black paint with mm-hmm. bright orange pinstripes. Yeah, so. no, totally. Yeah, I wasn't raised in car culture at all, but mm-hmm. uh, I did definitely go to a few car shows when I was younger, and I I know I went to one in '92, right around the time before Batman Returns came out, and I went with my sister and her boyfriend, mm-hmm. and uh, they had the Keaton Batmobile there, and they had the '66 Batmobile, and I beelined to the Keaton one, of course, because I. I love that movie mm-hmm. but when i went to see the 66 one i was like this is so freaking cool mm-hmm. you got to see inside where they were sitting and everything and yeah and uh yeah i just remember being up close to both of them and just right. thinking life cannot get 
any better than this. <laughs> right. As you recall, Robin, I spent last week testing the remote control unit of the Batmobile. You still have that gadget strapped to your wrist? Fortunately, yes. And then that show lasted, what, three years or four? Yeah, uh, three. It went three seasons. Uh, and in between the first and second season, that's when they released the big screen movie. Mm-hmm. Holy superlatives, Batman. It's really exciting. Soon, very soon, Batman and I will be batapulting right out of your TV sets and onto your theater screens. That's right, Robin. Our first full-length motion picture feature in color opens a whole new world of thrills. The big screen gives us more space on land, sea, and in the air to challenge the most bataclysmic collection of super criminals that ever plotted to take over the world. And that movie is just wall-to-wall 1960s Batman fun. (laughs) I mean, it it crams all of the villains from the TV show into the film, of course. And then the camp in the film is (laughs) just bursting at the seams. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. But yeah, season one comes out, does monumental business, and is a huge huge turning point in pop culture phenomenon really right. and then the uh, movie comes out after that as a big hit season two comes out and keeps the money train moving but i think something starts lagging because by the time season three comes along mm-hmm. uh, they start to do that tv show thing where they think ah we better introduce a new character right and uh, that's where batgirl comes in right, so. right. holy femininity batgirl batgirl Batgirl. Batgirl. Well, the dynamic duo now becomes the tremendous trio. Batman in color on ABC. She is portrayed by Yvonne Craig, and man, oh man, did I have me a big, huge, hotsy-totsy crush on Batgirl. (laughs) Yeah, it was uh, Commissioner Gordon's niece, right? No, daughter, daughter. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, because I remember the same thing, too. You would kind of catch word, because, you know, TV was a different thing in the late 70s. It was... You got your information from the TV guide, and there was only the three networks plus PBS. And like I said in a previous episode, we had HBO on top of that. But right. So when something came along, even when something came, it was advertised in syndication. Whether it would be like Green Acres or <laughs> or, or Batman, the right. TV show, it kind of spread through the neighborhood. Yeah, of kids right. like, holy shit! You know, <laughs> Batman's coming on TV starting every day after school at four <laughs> right, o'clock. Yeah. And I rem- I remember we were all super fucking stoked. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was always fun to watch it in syndication like that because they never played them in order. So one day you would have a season one episode, and then the next day you'd have a season three episode. And right. then I started to learn then that in the opening credit scene, if Batgirl was going to be in it, then right. her motorcycle would drive by, and I'd get all excited like, "Yes, sexy Batgirl's going to be in this episode." Sweet. <laughs> yes, with her legs. <laughs> I don't know who you are, young lady, but you certainly know how to handle yourself well. Holy agility, I'll say. Thank you, dynamic duo. I'm sure you could have handled these crooks without my help, but I was glad for the chance to join in the fun. There's one thing I wanted to take note of real quick, and that is that the theme song to this TV show, Batman, was uh, written by a man named Neil Hefty. He's the same guy who did the Odd Couple theme song a few years later. Mm -hmm. But in 66, he did this Batman TV show. 
So Neil Hefty wrote that iconic theme song to the Batman TV show, but then they brought in a guy named Nelson Riddle who did the score for the whole show. Mm-hmm. And what this guy did with the music matches the TV show so much because it's so over the top right. and it complements the cheesiness and showiness and flamboyantness of the show and accentuates all of the pows and bams and booms. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. with that TV show theme song that Neil Hefty did, it was immediately iconic. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, it just it stuck in the public consciousness from then on out. Because, uh, okay, back in 2016 when Batman vs. Superman came out, I worked in the movie theater industry. Yeah. And there was a man there with his young son, I'd say, like, I don't know, six or seven years old, and the little boy had a Batman toy. And when he was playing with it while they were waiting to get into the theater, mm-hmm. the little boy was playing with the toy, and he was going, na 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 And that is incredible to me because like 1966 theme right in 2016 a kid is still humming that theme that's 50 years later it sticks it's just, in your head yeah right yeah it's kind of like it's the, crazy it's like the jaws right yeah yeah totally hand me down the shark repellent bat spray i know i saw the adam west movie Probably sometime in the very early 80s mm-hmm. or something like that on TV, but I ha- I I don't remember anything about it. I just know that all of the bad guys were in. Mm-hmm. It, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, it was uh, the Riddler. Of course, was Frank Gorshin, uh, Caesar Romero as the Joker, Burgess Meredith as the Penguin, and then I think Lee Merriweather was the Catwoman. Uh, okay. But the movie was just stuffed full of everything that you could possibly love from the TV show. Yeah. Times 10. It was just way overload. It was like a kid who loves ice cream, and you just give him like 18 gallons of ice cream, (laughs) and you just, you finish, and you're like, ah, I don't feel good. (laughs) Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. And even aside from all of the villains that you get in the film, you get the bat boat, the bat copter, and then a ton of bat gadgets, especially... Shark repellent, Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. That's (laughs) literally the only thing I remember. (laughs) Oh, really? An exploding shark was pulling my leg. The Joker. The other thing that you got to really understand, too, is how much this show influences as time goes on. And I'm not just talking about, like, pop culture and everything. I'm talking about later Batman films. There is influence in these characters or the things that these characters do in this film and TV show from 66. Right, right. But you have the way that Burgess Meredith laughs as the Penguin, and that becomes so iconic that you end up getting to 1992 with Batman Returns, and Danny DeVito even uses that laugh. Right. Or the Fred Gorshin, the laugh of the Riddler. That is reflected in Jim Carrey's performance in Batman Forever in 95. Yeah. And, of course, all the way up to today when a Batman movie comes out, every TV entertainment show or even two schmoes on a podcast have to use the same bat time, same bat channel. The many things that the huge success of the TV show did for the comic book was, by what Bob Kane says anyway, is that the comic book was close to cancellation before the TV show ended up airing. And once it became a huge hit, of course, it saved it from cancellation. Right, right. So with the success of the TV show, the comic book starts to thrive again. And then many things in the comic book start reflecting what the TV show did. Like, for example, the uh, Batmobile that's in the TV series ended up becoming the official comic book Batmobile for a while. 
right okay and also even though there was a bat girl bat woman in the comics before this tv show came along after this tv show came along the whole barbara gordon being bat girl becomes iconic and a part of comic book history from here on out yeah and also there was all those stories about when this tv show was in its prime and a big pop culture phenomenon it was like a magnet for all of these celebrities of the time to come and hang out on set and and want to be a part of it in some way do cameos or whatever even you know you get vincent price coming in to play egghead as one of the main villains <laughs> craziness not so brave when your henchmen aren't around are you egghead oh i never claimed to be brave bad girl no I'm, I'm clever and crafty but i'm a complete coward you 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 won't let him shoot me get on the back of my bad girl cycle and show me where your hideout is i'm that thing but i, I might be extinguished yeah I, I think that this show despite its campy corny over the topness mm-hmm. is exactly what it needs to be for this time to keep batman in vogue and, and and fashionable and keep him going all the way up until we get the next iteration in 1989 right and i think adam right. west is the perfect guy to play this part because he gets it he's in on the joke and he knows exactly what to give to the part uh-huh. to get kids to respond to it and to get adults to respond to it mm-hmm. adam west puts such a trademark style on batman that this is batman for those three seasons that he did the show and they have to go a completely different radical tone just to get away from how big of an impression that Adam West's performance made on the character. Right, <laughs> right. I know, I understand that. Batman has become a, a social or cultural phenomenon mm-hmm. to a degree, to a large degree. It's like uh, everywhere I go, you know, I see uh, the Batman uh, t-shirts, whatever. I see my kisser on sweatshirts and so on. Now, in the same year that the Adam West TV show premieres, the 1966 June issue of Batman number 181, Poison Ivy makes her debut. Forget the geriatric bat. Come join me. My garden needs tending. But even though the show was canceled after the third season, Batman was still huge with kids, and the comic book sales were still doing well. So, I mean, it's not a huge surprise that in 1968 we get our first representation of Batman in animation with the Batman Superman Hour. Right, right. Watch out, villains! Here come Batman and Robin! In this particular cartoon, a gentleman by the name of Olin Soul would end up voicing Batman, and he would come back to voice him a few times over Batman's cartoon history. First a few beakers from the laboratory, now this. But also what's really funny is that Robin in this cartoon is voiced by Casey Kasem. (laughs) Right, right, right. Why would a criminal go to so much trouble for a few trinkets, Batman? Let's stop off in 1969 real quick and talk about something that's very important to the story, mm-hmm. and that is that Warner Brothers purchases DC Comics. Yeah. So they own all of the characters that are in the catalog for DC Comics. Yeah. Now before we move on to our next piece of information, it is very important to note that the Silver Age of Comics took place from 1956 to 1970. Ah. So by 1970, even though what was represented on TV as Batman as fun and hijinks and campiness and stuff like that, mm-hmm. on the comic side of things, DC brings in a writer by the name of Dennis O'Neill and an artist by the name of Neil Adams, and they start to push away from all of that hijinks and fun and campiness and stuff, mm-hmm. and they start to ground the stories a little bit more and bring in a lot more mood. And so if you look at how Batman is depicted as far as the art that Neil Adams does, 
does and the stories that Dennis O'Neill does as opposed to what came before it, uh-huh. it's vastly different. And you start to see this darker tone start to come into Batman, which is very much embraced by the comic community, but it's still a small little minute group at the time. But yeah. everyone started to see right then what could become of Batman if he was taken a little more seriously. Now, in 1971, in the June issue of Batman number 232, Razak Ghul makes his debut. You have learned to bury your guilt with anger. I will teach you to confront it. Then you go all the way up to 1972, and Olin Sol and Casey Kasem come back to reprise their roles as Batman and Robin as guest stars on Scooby Doo. Oh, yeah. Where are you? Then in 1973, we get The Super Friends. Yeah, we talked about that on our kids' show. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. The Hall of Justice thing, and yeah, there was a lot of... and then Good old Ted Knight. Their mission, to fight injustice, to right that which is wrong, and to serve all mankind. Then in 1977, you have the new adventures of Batman and Robin cartoon show. Okay. This time, Batman and Robin are being voiced by Adam West and Burt Ward, who are returning from the 66 show, so that was really cool. Right, right. Greetings, Bat fans. This is Batman. And Robin, the boy wonder. And me too, Bat Mike. Welcoming you to the new adventures of Batman. And I ended up watching every single one of those cartoon shows. Sometimes they ended up on video, so I'd rent it, or they'd be in reruns, so I'd watch it. But I loved every one of those shows. <laughs> right. But all of these cartoons that we just mentioned was actually a representation of all of that camp and silliness that was in the comic books before that 66 TV show came along. Mm-hmm. But after that TV show came along, it took the camp and silliness to a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, what happened with the Batman character is he started to be looked at as this kind of goofy, silly character. <laughs> and that became a detriment to the character as time would move on into the 80s. Okay. So one of the first things that really starts to propel interest in a Batman film is that in 1978, Mm -hmm. another superhero comes out with a super movie. Right. And that's Superman. Easy, miss. I've got you. You, You've got me. Who's got you? So when Superman the movie starring Christopher Reeve comes out in 1978 and is a huge hit, Mm -hmm. Warner Brothers, who owns DC, says, oh, my God, this is a huge hit. What other characters do we have that are well-known that we can put in a movie? Hey, Batman. Right, right. So now that they know that they have the Batman property, they end up going to the guy who directed their Superman movie, Richard Donner, and asking him to direct it. He, of course, says no because he had a horrible experience doing the Superman movie. Yeah. They go to the writer of the Superman movies, and that's Tom Mankiewicz. He ends up writing what will become the first attempt at the script for the first Batman film, Uh which never gets made because his script is apparently super campy, like everyone would expect a Batman film to be. Yeah. And then, of course, development hell starts on this thing that ends up lasting over 10 years long, and a lot of names of directors and actors attached to the project. January of 1979, Lucius Fox is introduced as the financial wizard for Wayne Enterprises in Batman number 307. So in that development hell of trying to get the uh, Batman movie rolling, a lot of actors came in and out of the picture to play Batman. Um, Right. Some of the guys we had on the list through that 10 years of development hell were uh, Kevin Costner, (laughs) Mel Gibson, Mm, of course. 
Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> Bill Murray, that was the Ivan Reitman one, right? Right. Uh, Pierce Brosnan, Charlie Sheen, Harrison Ford, Dennis Quaid, Tom Hanks, Tom Selleck, Alec Baldwin, Kurt Russell, <laughs> Ray Liotta, and Willem Dafoe. Yeah, that's just... That's a crazy list. Willem, even back then, he was kind of gaunt and... Yeah. Well, and now because of... Um, in the new one, the Batman, uh, Robert Pattinson is playing him, and a lot of people are doing that whole lighthouse thing and saying oh, yeah, that course. Willem Dafoe should be the Joker, and the people are doing like the the colorations of his, and he does kind of look the yeah. part. But no, he would he's be already a great one. Yeah, he could be. He could be. Maybe that's why people come up to me and say, "You know what role you'd be perfect for? The Joker." <laughs> Always nice to hear that you got the vibe of a sociopath. <laughs> So, yeah, and then uh, also for the same, you know, before it ended up becoming um, Jack Nicholson for The Joker, we had mm -hmm. a list that included John Malkovich. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that one. <laughs> uh, Tim Curry, which I can see a... Yeah. I, hopefully it wouldn't be too overdone, like... Uh, right, like in the shadow? <laughs> or, or, the, or, or, or Congo. Every word of it was... I'm so totally true. Well, he has this right, totally made-up uh, accent. Oof. And again, Willem Dafoe, so uh, I guess mm -hmm. he jumped around back and forth between Batman right. and, and, and David Bowie, which is the other Ivan Reitman one, right? right. It's understandable, too. I can see David Bowie just because he's, he's got that thin... Yeah. David Bowie would work. Uh, ...physique that he was displayed like that a lot in the comic books. Before. Well, and you, you think of Ziggy Stardust, too. He had the kind of spiky oh, red yeah. hair and the heavy white makeup on his face. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, so again, Ray Liotta, also for the Joker, James Woods, Robin Williams. Well, I remember hearing that one back in the day. Right. And John Lithgow. And John John Lithgow would have been a very interesting one, I think. Right. <laughs> a lot of big name directors too, as you go through it. Now these are all reportedly, so who knows if it's real or not? But names like Ridley Scott's thrown out there, Oliver Stone, John Landis, John Carpenter, mm -hmm. George Miller, Steven Spielberg, and Ivan Reitman, just to name a few. Right. So that by the time you hear of the rumors of Tim Burton making a movie, mm -hmm. and what, that would have been in 88, I guess, mm -hmm. right? right? When they're casting and all that stuff. And yeah. you're, you're immediately thinking you're going to see another Adam West movie, though. <laughs> right, know? yeah. Now, switching back to the comic side of things for just a minute, the Bronze Era of comics, which started in 1970, ends in 1986. And oddly enough, one of the most influential comics for Batman comics, and, well, and arguably even comics in general, right. is The Dark Knight Returns. And that is released in 1986. That, of course, is written by Frank Miller and then illustrated by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen. And yeah. <laughs> man, oh man, the ripples of the effects of this comic is still being felt in the Batman character today yeah. in all forms of media. Basically saying, fuck you, comic book code. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Right, totally. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and so the comics aren't being as vilified right now. Right. And also at this time, the government is kind of hands-off. They're just like, eh, we don't care what's going on with those comic book things anymore. We've got other things. Well, and that's, that's that Reagan era anyway where everything's deregulated and we're like, we're not going to step on anybody's toes. Mm -hmm. So Right, yeah. Because that's when we talked about it in our kids' show. They mm -hmm. allowed advertising directly right. to children like he -Man in the 80s. And G.I. Joe and right, yeah. all that stuff, yeah. Right. Power of 
but indeed, yeah, the, the Dark Knight Returns comes out. Huge hit. Fans love yeah, it. Right. The new trajectory for Batman and the super dark tone right. is starting to take shape. Uh, not just with DC, but with Marvel as well, because before uh, Frank Miller even did this uh, Dark Knight Returns, he also did a comic book for uh, Marvel for Daredevil. Really brought that character to a dark place and everything. So okay. it was starting to happen in all forms of comic books that darkness was creeping in. Right, yeah. yeah. The first one was very much a reintroduction of Batman as if you were a brand new character, trying to throw away the dust and muck that had gathered on him over all the ages and trying to make him a bit more rough and tumble, a bit saucier. He wasn't kid stuff anymore. Then if we move ahead just a tiny bit to 1987, yeah. Frank Miller comes back once again for Batman Year One. Now he just writes this one, he doesn't do art on it. The art was left to David Mazzuccelli, who does phenomenal in this uh, comic mm -hmm. book. And it's a really amazing story. It deals with the origin of uh, Bruce becoming Batman in his first year of becoming Batman. Right. And also the origin of Jim Gordon coming in and their union, if you will, as it is burgeoning into uh, helping Gotham become a better place. And this is also used for future movies, as we will find out. Right. If you get it back to what the substance of the idea is, if you... You know, you, you go back to when, when Batman was a, was a vigilante who carried a gun on his hip back in the 30s again. You, you start seeing what a strong chord they can strike. Then a little later on in 1987, DC puts out A Death in the Family. This is written by Jim Starlin. And this is a pretty controversial one, too, because as the issues were coming out for this story, uh -huh. the readers actually got to call in and vote on if they wanted Robin to live or die. And <laughs> the readers actually, they were like, get rid of him. And, and yeah. also at this time, Dick Grayson was no longer Robin. He went on to become Nightwing on his own. So they had a new Robin, which was Jason Todd. Yeah. And uh, I guess a lot of people didn't like him at the time. I remember not voting at the time, just reading it and wondering what was going to happen. And it was a ballsy move for them to kill him off in the way that they kill him off. And of course, the kill goes to Joker. So it was pretty awesome. Nah. I'm just going to keep beating you with this crowbar. <laughs> then in 1988, we got an extremely influential comic book coming out, written by Alan Moore and art by Brian Boland. And this one has a new perspective on the origin of the Joker, which is extremely interesting right. and also is just really dark. I mean, there are some dark things in this that the Joker goes to some recesses and trying to prove his point about certain things. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to give too much away, but it's just a, a fantastic book that keeps on giving to future artists, artists of today, and yeah, and also right. a lot of fodder for every kind of Batman media that's coming out, that has come out, will come out. It's just the gift that keeps on giving for a lot of Batman fans. There we go. Well, what are you waiting for? Kick the hell out of me and get your standing ovation. So, on the comic side, of course, things are getting dark and really gritty, and it's being very well embraced by the comic book community. They love it. Right. And so this causes Warner Brothers, who owns Batman, to be like, all of these scripts that we're writing does not match the tone at oh, all right. on the comic books that are out there right now that people love. So maybe we should readjust and also readjust our plans on who should direct this. Mm -hmm. And thus, as you said earlier, Tim Burton is brought up because he had given Warner Brothers two hits, uh, one in 85 with Pee-wee's Big Adventure, <laughs> and then one in 88 with Beetlejuice. Yeah. And so Warner is like, hey, this Tim Burton guy has uh, done a lot with a little in his past two films. Maybe we can give him back 
Batman and he'll do a lot with it for little budget then we would have to pay someone like Spielberg or something like that Tim Burton comes in looks at the script they tinker with it a little bit but he gets the script where he needs it and then that's when they start production and as far as trying to find who's going to be Batman and who's going to be the Joker which is who they've settled on being the villain Jack ends up signing, of course. He ends up being the Joker for this film. Yeah. Makes a monumental deal. Obviously, Jack, out of everyone at the table of this meeting and casting thing, was the one who knew how big this movie was going to get. He just, I guess, had a feeling about it or something. Because uh -huh. he ends up with a deal that's going to give him points on gross of the movie and the sequel and merchandise and everything and mm -hmm. it's said that he ends up after the whole tally is done on both this film and the, I think even the sequel that he ends up with like a 90 million dollar deal right. the highest right. of any actor that's ever made anything off of it at that time of course I, I'm sure Robert Downey Jr. and everyone's beat him these days I have successfully privatized world peace but no one but George Lucas was thinking like that back in these days and so <laughs> right. the, those two guys probably taught every everyone a lesson who is doing Marvel movies and DC movies now that hey I want to points in the merchandise too because that's where the money is that's true yeah and of course at the time Nicholson being cast as a Joker everyone who wasn't even comic book fans at the time were freaking out about that uh -huh. saying oh he's so freaking perfect for that role of so course so everybody was like oh yeah that's gonna mm -hmm. be great right you know? yeah and then they hear Michael Keaton and they're like what, what? I mean I understand in a way why people said Michael Keaton's back. What are you, nuts? I mean, in a way. When Michael Keaton, it's announced that he's cast, it's pretty much... It's uh, hated because everyone yeah. thinks that it's going to be Adam Westy again because all Keaton's known for at the time is comedy. Comedies, yeah. Uh, Mr. Mom and mm -hmm. right, yeah. Night Shift. and Yeah, and I, I remember it being big enough to be in all the papers mm -hmm. at the time and even on like Entertainment Tonight, all of that stuff. It was a really big deal. But I... As a comic book fan at the time, a lot of comic book fans did not like that news. I was really favorable mm -hmm. for it. I thought I was a huge fan of his, all of his movies. So I was excited about it just because it was such an unconventional choice. Uh -huh. You know, and I mean, these days we have the Internet. Right. So your complaint is heard immediately. Yeah. But back in those days, you had to physically sit down, write right. Right. a letter to Warner Brothers or whoever you were, and then go out and pick it because there were people doing that. Keaton even said after he signed in the news came up. There was this uh, faction of uh, the DC Comics fundamentalists, as I call them. By the time I discovered that they had such a heavy lobby, we were in England um, working, so that was really fortunate for us because it was, then I came back and then I whew, got it about nine minutes after I stepped off the plane, I started, I noticed something was afoot. Mm. And by that time I was pretty fascinated by it. And I still am pretty amazed by it, I just don't quite get it. So there, there's really no way of knowing how big and how how many people at the time hated this choice because it wasn't an instantaneous no thing like the internet gives us right now but it was big enough to make the paper so i'd say it was pretty big yeah yeah no i mean there was i remember being you know because i would have been in high school at this point and oh, uh okay right there was a lot of skepticism and mm -hmm. groaning mumbling and groaning of course you know, negatively yeah all through the press and stuff like do that. Do you remember hearing about the movie early, or do did you just hear about it as it was about to come out? No, I think right. there was some kind of lead up to the, that Batman was trying to be 
made, yeah. The crowd started gathering over the weekend in anticipation of a movie premiere so big it had to be held in two theaters. Despite their getup, the 36-hour wait at the head of the line was no joke. Yeah, so I remember I remember going to see the movie, this movie in the theater and it being a huge hit. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. it was very successful. And I remember thinking it was cool as shit. And <laughs> it was nothing that I could have ever imagined, you know what I mean? Right, like, yeah. As far as what we now know as like that Tim Burton stamp, mm -hmm. it's definitely on there oh yeah right? yeah totally yeah did you know at the time that batman was released that was from the same director as uh, beetlejuice or uh, peewee's big adventure mm, i can't remember mm. maybe okay because he became pretty much when batman and edward scissorhands comes out mm -hmm. you know he becomes this like you know mega director oh of yeah the 90s basically and so then it's like oh he did that mm -hmm. then you think about it and there's that weird kind of right look that he has oh that yeah kind of almost like gothic mm -hmm. victorian look about it totally you know what i mean yeah it's a german expressionism mm -hmm. with a little bit of film noir yeah and uh, even some uh, suburban gothic yeah i mean that style of his has grown so popular that even other directors when they rip it off it's known as burton-esque now that that looks so burton-esque that's how popular that style became well no i something about the world of batman i don't know you know again it just seems to call for that kind of feeling it's this city at night and these sort of symbolic characters kind of roaming around. Uh, uh, there's something about it that just is very appealing and attractive, uh, and it seems to just call for that kind of world. As far as my first experience seeing this film, I saw this opening day. I was bugging my mom about it, so she took me to see it. It was one of the first films I remember going in and having to wait early in line before we could get into the theater and see it. It was mm -hmm. a packed theater. Out in the lobby, they were selling memorabilia for the film, so little buttons and magazines. Oh, right. And posters and all kinds of stuff and that was the first time I'd ever experienced something like that too and this I mean this movie made such a huge impact on me uh, it's like a demarcation point in my life honestly <laughs> because uh. I'm, I'm pretty good about knowing when certain movies came out especially from the 80s and 90s mm -hmm. but this is like a BCAD thing for me <laughs> because was that before yeah. Batman so I can usually tell like if someone names a movie and it's after Batman I can say well okay Batman came out here so I can you know I, I can deduct when that movie came out based on this movie. That's how big of a monumental thing this this movie was to me. So right, right. This meant a lot to me, and I loved my theater experience for it. It was one of the most special that in my life I can think of. Right. I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. Yeah, that movie comes out on June 23rd of 1989. That was a date that was burned into my brain. And I, w I remember even thinking as a kid, because I was 10 at the time, I remember thinking, just let me live until June 24th because I'll see it on opening day and then I'll be good to go if I have to die. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> this weird shit like right, that. Right, right, right. But yeah, I was 10, so... Yeah, I was just a weird kid, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I, it influenced me too. But mm -hmm. like I said, I was a little older. How old do you think you were? I would have been sixteen oh. when this movie, summer of '89. Wow, which okay. that makes perfect sense because that was when I, I very first concert I went to was NWA and the Posse. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, I was still, and I'm a, I was a little bit of a late bloomer, kind of a, mm-hmm. I was, obviously I'm listening to gangster rap, but there's also a part of me that's like hanging on to young kids stuff too. So Batman kind of, you know, I had like a bat, uh, I had two Batman posters in my room. I had one where oh, wow. it's Michael Keaton in the outfit, right. and it's very black and he's standing by the rear wheel of the Batmobile. Oh yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And he's kind of looking off to the side. And then I had another one where, cause I had vertical mm-hmm. blinds in the window of my bedroom. So I took the one of the Batman symbol mm-hmm. and then I sliced it up to be able to fit on the blind so that when you opened it and closed it it still <laughs> looked like it you know what I mean? it was really it, it took me like eight hours to get the measurements right and all that shit but yeah so it yeah it did make a, a an impression on me for oh, sure right yeah do you remember your reaction to the casting of uh, keaton as batman at all but just a little shocked and not quite getting it okay Right. Not quite understanding. But then when I watch the movie, I'm like, well, he fucking did it. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I'd like to. But he's out there right now. And I've got to go to work. One of the many choices that I loved that Michael Keaton did for the part of Batman Bruce Wayne was the voice change. Mm. And uh, as a kid reading comic books, I always did that in my head oh, when I read okay. a Batman comic. Bruce Wayne talks like this and Batman talks like this or something like that. Yeah, right. And uh, that probably got in my head because I was a fan of the Max Fleischer cartoons for Superman that they did in the 40s. Right. And uh, an actor by the name of Bud Collier did the voice of Superman and Clark Kent in those cartoons. He was also the same gentleman that did the uh, voice for Superman and Clark Kent on the uh, Superman radio show. And so Bud Collier actually probably is the origin story for the basis of this kind of changing your voice because mm-hmm. Clark Kent talked like this and Superman talked like this, you know, that <laughs> right. kind of thing. So this looks like a job for Superman. Yeah. And so I always really loved that while watching those cartoon shows. And so to see Keaton come in and then do that for this film, I just absolutely loved it because that's what I did in my head for the comic book. <laughs> right. And it makes sense because he's trying to hide his identity Mm -hmm. yeah except there's an eccentric billionaire in town and this guy's got these billionaire (laughs) one-off machines it's probably that guy bruce wayne no way Uh -uh. (laughs) because bruce wayne talks like this and batman talks like this (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't add up to him i'm a night stalking crime fighting vigilante and a heavy metal rapping machine but yeah michael keaton doing his voice like that that was the first time on film anyway that batman had ever been represented like that before i mean adam west surely didn't change his voice whether he was in costume or out of costume yeah he didn't yeah he talked like him the whole no matter what you filthy criminals getting in a little bit more to uh, the keaton performance and what i absolutely love about keaton as batman is he's such an interesting choice mm-hmm. and uh, there's always been a lot of uh, hoopla if you will mm-hmm. about uh, how especially the keaton movies never really concentrate too much on Batman as the character. He's not the front-line character, basically. Yeah. And you don't see a lot of them. There was complaints about that. Tim Burton actually addresses this in one of the commentaries for either Batman or Batman Returns. The sadness in the Batman character is is that all, you know, the villains get to come out and play where he's got to keep a lid on it. You know, I mean, so there's, I think, there's a loneliness to that character and a withheldness. And, you know, and I think... At least in my opinion, a lot of people misinterpret that. They just go, well, oh, he's not in the movie that much, or it's really all about Catwoman or the Penguin. And, and when in fact, you know, like I said before, he, he's, 
He's a character that is sad and is private and can't come out really uh, to, to play, so to speak. I always really found the choice of Keaton playing Batman just really inspired, just because it was so different. It was such a different take from the comic book, because in the comic book, especially at the time, Bruce is a really built guy. He's, he's a jacked dude. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when you look at the Keaton version, he needs all of those weapons. He needs to put forth this ominous presence and that's what that suit does. Wearing that suit gives him a whole new persona, basically. Mm-hmm. And he's doing that to strike fear. And so that really re- you know, registered with me in a very unique way that I just locked into it. Yeah. Really loved. Mainly because it was a different path from the comic book. Mm-hmm. There were representations of the comic book definitely in the movie, for sure. But it also was like a new artist coming in and giving his vision of what Batman might be in his mind, from his mind. Mm-hmm. And so that's what Tim Burton did. And by casting Michael Keaton, he really put a stamp on, this is my version of Batman. Right. And that's what I loved about it. So going in, already really being a fan of Tim Burton, really being a fan of Michael Keaton, and then just really loving the take on it because it does embrace a lot of the fantastical stuff from the comic book. Yeah. But I don't think to an absurd level, in my opinion, just because the movie also grounds itself in its world, of course, yeah. but it grounds itself enough to where... I think the actors are taking the content seriously in the movie. They're having fun, for sure, but I don't think the direction is like, be a cartoon. And that's what I love about Keaton's performance, because he does a lot with a little. And I think that it's important to note that this Bruce Wayne and Batman, Keaton's version, doesn't want a persona out there of himself. That's why Bruce is a mystery at the party. Everyone doesn't know, yeah, is this Bruce Wayne? Is that Bruce? What, what does he do? Who is this guy kind of thing? There's nothing in these files. No photos, no histories, no nothing. Who is this guy? Who cares? Michael Keaton's performance as Bruce, I think, is so multifaceted. It's very multidimensional because you can see that he's confident in certain areas. Uh He's playful in certain areas. And he's also uncomfortable with this persona that he has as well. The, the, I have a lot of money and I can do all this stuff. You see a lot of different layers in there of it. He plays into it a bit, especially at that dinner table scene. That's a great representation. And so at that dinner table scene, when uh, Bruce and Vicky have that first date she asks him do you like eating in here and he gets this look and he looks around like very confidently like oh yeah yeah you know looks around the room and then immediately gets this look like where the hell am i you don't know the truth i don't think i've ever been in this room before and his response to it very dead serious until she starts <laughs> laughing and then you can see his face change like i'm in on the joke i'm making you laugh i want you to feel comfortable maybe he was even in on hey let's eat in there so that we can break the ice a little bit that way <laughs> i feel a little drunk and you're not anything. Hey, one drink and I'm flying. <laughs> and that's what I love about this. There's little nuances that Keaton gives this character that's really, really good. Right. And then later on in the movie, when Bruce goes to Vicky's apartment and then Joker shows up a little later, right. you see that great scene between all three of them. But before Joker shows up, you can see Bruce is trying to tell her that he's Batman. But he does it in this way. Right. Like, Keaton, the way he plays that, I love it. Because you can see he's not comfortable letting people in. He doesn't want to love her to tell her this secret of his because right, right. he wants to be alone on this. But he can't help it. He can't fight his feelings at the same time. So he's very conflicted there. And he's going back and forth. He plays plays it a little manic and mm-hmm. I really love that about it because it's nuanced and you can see he's very vulnerable in that scene so I love it I have something I have to tell you you see my life is really um, 
complex. Yeah, right. Because I, yeah, I feel like that kind of carries on into the next few movies too, mm-hmm. where they try to replicate that. Yeah, yeah, not exactly. very successfully. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Ms. Vale, another rooster in the hen house. <laughs> and then later on in that scene, when the Joker shows up at her apartment, and Bruce and Joker have that scene together, the way Keaton plays that is just—I love it because mm-hmm. you really see him become unhinged in that scene. Yeah, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. Yeah, that exactly. whole thing. Yeah, right. Come on. Let's get nuts. That gets into the Batman thing where he he puts on this suit. Keaton's in that suit. And as Batman, he's just so great because even Tim says that Keaton and Tim worked on minimizing Batman because this is a guy who doesn't want to be known. And the more he says things, the more people might recognize his voice. So he doesn't say a lot. Mm. But yeah, seeing this movie for the first time, seeing Keaton as Batman for the first time, I absolutely fell in love with Keaton as Batman. I thought it was such a unique and great performance. And yeah, he's not in it a lot right. and I think that that fits the character he's playing he doesn't want to be seen a lot so it makes sense that you don't see a lot of him in the film and that always worked for me <laughs> you weigh a little more than 108 oh really let's go and then years later I would actually get to meet Michael Keaton and right. he was one of the nicest guys I cannot say enough kind things about how great he was he let me geek out a little bit around him and he <laughs> even uh, shared some stories about Batman and Beetlejuice and all of this stuff so he he's so very cool and really embraces the the love that people have for him as Batman and he's not one of those snooty people that are just like oh, I don't want to talk about this <laughs> <laughs> right right so right. yeah he was so cool you're the new Batman. Yeah, yeah. You've, you've got no, I am the lineage. Batman. You're the Batman. Yeah. But you've got this lineage. Let's be still. clear about that. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, the so like I said, the movie came out and it was a big hit, and everybody loved Michael Keaton. Mm-hmm. They they ate their words, yeah. and of course, but everybody knew that Jack Nicholson was gonna nail. Oh yeah. Was gonna nail the Joker, and he did. Yeah. He, did. he slaughtered it. <laughs> <laughs> what are you laughing at? <laughs> to me, Jack Nicholson's performance as the Joker is a representation of many things from the comics over many many years, but also it's not Jack. Nicholson unless there's Jack Nicholson in there and that's what he does he infuses a lot of different things plus a lot of different things from his own homages of people from his life and stuff like that I was afraid because of my feel of the television series and the way movies tend to be done and talked about I didn't want this to go through the normal let's brighten it up for the kids you know what I mean I thought this was a a very strong in every way transitional movie about the genre and really why they wanted me in there you know in other words on a superficial level at that moment it gave it oh this is not just another cartoon movie he just is able to take a part and really make it his own and make it kind of goofy and scary and everything all at the same time and uh, I loved it I was transfixed by it when I was watching it because I was a huge Nicholson fan at the time too my early experience told me from working for an audience full of children the more you scare them the more they like it the worse you are the better because that was my response to the joke I mean, after all this is a hateful occurrence this man and if you looked at it literally i love the little things that he does too like just at times making these weird little noises out of nowhere it's just it's weird and this guy is obviously completely crazy and he's just slipped into even deeper madness and <laughs> right, i loved right. that about it and i also loved the nicholson joker laugh it was it's a it's iconic yeah <laughs> 
But yeah, they say Jack Nicholson absolutely loved this part. They say it's one of his favorite parts that he's ever played. He had a lot of fun with it. Apparently, he was a, a comic book fan back in the when he was a young kid and actually read the Batman comics. And Joker was his favorite character. So every kid loves this guy, I believe, and I particularly love just the name Joker. It's fantastic. Right. So the, the other thing to note about the Tim Burton film is the the score. Oh, yeah. The score. Obviously, Prince did a lot of the music. You know, mm-hmm. that was back in a time when soundtracks were a big part of the sales of the movie and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. they would always try to get big stars right. to do the uh, music. So Prince was, yeah. And Prince is actually dating Kim Basinger at that point. You remember? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was a big deal. So Prince does a whole album of songs that uh, most of which aren't even in the movie. There's a couple in there with Joker scenes that fit pretty well, but they're kind of crammed in the movie in a, in a sense. And it is said that Tim Burton was kind of against that whole thing because yeah. uh, well he just didn't want it to be all poppy just and cheapened it. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> But I mean, for songs that are being kind of crammed into a movie just because the company wants to sell an album, the songs aren't horrible. Like, I yeah. like how they fit into the movie. Mm-hmm. I like Trust when it fits into the whole parade scene in the movie and watching Nicholson get down to it. It's pretty funny. Trust. And then, of course, Party Man fits that scene mm-hmm. so perfectly and seeing Nicholson dance around like that in the art museum. Love it. And Bad Dance was a huge music video at the mm-hmm. time. I mean, it played all the time. On and, and even the song played on the radio. It was a huge thing. I, as a movie score fan, mm-hmm. could not wait to get my hands on the musical score of Batman. And that was Danny Elfman, right? Yep, yep, Danny Elfman. Right. Batman was and still rates as the most difficult and challenging movie experience I ever had in my life. I had only, at that point, done comedies and nobody wanted me on the film except for Tim. There was a point I remember my second or third presentation and John Peters was in the room and I didn't know how to present music to a producer at that point so I was playing all this kind of weird stuff that I was coming up with and then Tim said play the march, play the march. played that and suddenly John started conducting in the room and Tim gave me a look like I think we're in. Now there's rumors out there that he had help composing this score by another composer by the name of Shirley Walker which does have some legitimacy because she goes on to score the Batman animated series later on. Well he was the front man the famous front man for Oingo Boingo Mm -hmm. which was like a kind of obscure new wave band of the uh, late 70s early 80s kind of punkish. Yeah they're great great and I I knew them from watching Back to School they were in Back Back to School. school, Right Dead Man's Party. (laughs) Right, he's really prolific. He's done a lot. He's even crossed the streams as far as comic book movies go because he's done music for DC characters and he's done music for Marvel characters like Spider-Man. So I'm a big musical score person. That's pretty much dominates what I listen to. Mm-hmm. I listen to other things too, but musical scores, I just, I love it just because I love movies so much. So uh, what Danny Elfman did with the Batman theme, I feel is an evolution to what 
John Williams did for the Superman theme, which is another movie that's extremely special to me. So that makes sense that this would be. Yeah. But yeah, I absolutely love this score, love everything about it. I think probably if I had to narrow it down to one scene in the movie where the music just enraptured me in my first viewing of this film, Mm -hmm. it's in that scene where Batman's taking Vicky to the Batcave and it's going down that road Mm -hmm. and slowly building. The voices are coming into the score and then it just full on as the Batmobile storms down that road, the theme just blasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the other really super cool parts that I think is in this movie is definitely the scene where we're introduced to the Batwing. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, I freaked out when I saw that. And especially, I remember the whole audience gasp at that part where he goes up in the air. Where he, yeah, stalls it yes. in front of the moon, and yeah. it looks just like it. Yeah. Yeah, I loved that it. That was so cool. Oh, my God. And I remember the whole audience response at the same time was, whoa. Yeah. I <laughs> loved it. <laughs> right. God, right. I loved that. He stole my balloons! Why didn't somebody tell me that he had one of those things? You know, and also in that Batwing scene, uh, one thing that's funny is that Batman is shooting bullets and missiles down at the Joker's henchmen at that time. And at the Joker, too. Mm-hmm. But he's killing a lot of Joker henchmen in that scene. Right. And there wasn't <laughs> right. a whole lot of uproar about this at the time. As the movies go on and you see Batman killing people, yeah. there tends to be a bigger and bigger outcry about that. But for some reason for this movie, there, there, there really wasn't. Yeah. So since we talked about the 1966 Batmobile, we have to talk about Anton first redesign of the Batmobile in this movie, and I thought it was fantastic. Oh, yeah. I remember thinking it was the coolest thing ever. Yeah, I remember thinking that, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, just, you know, very phallic, but also <laughs> right. very imposing, and, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, he'll later on... Tim Burton will do the Headless Horseman movie. Mm-hmm. There's something about that car that kind of has that vibe as it's going down the black roads with the trees overhead oh. and all that stuff. Yeah, a very like hammer horror, sinister. Yeah, gothic. Yeah, timeless right. kind of horror feel. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, they take the jet engine idea and make it more technically correct mm-hmm. with the the big op- you know compressor sticking out of the front, you know. Mm-hmm. So like it's like the whole car is basically built around this giant 12-foot jet engine. Right. Yeah. And they also incorporate that the grappling hook that shoots out and helps the car turn. Yeah. Help to, to <laughs> corners, yeah. I remember being a kid and being like, "Wow. Why don't they do that in race cars?" <laughs> right. <laughs> Then, of course, you get older and you're like, oh, that I would rip the whole side of that car off, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Where does he get those wonderful toys? Anyway, so this movie was uh, filmed in London at Pinewood Studios. A huge set was built for uh, the Gotham City set. So everything outdoor that you see in the film that's shot in Gotham City is all really outdoors. Even though it's a set, it's right. shot outdoors. So, And it's also shot in London, so there's a little bit of uh, British sensibilities in with this film. So I think that that takes it completely out of being a full-on Tim Burtony world because of that British sensibilities kind of creeping in. Right. Uh, that is something that we'll experience a little later on and as the films go on. Yes. But uh, this was a 40, I think 35, 40 million dollar budgeted film which was huge for Tim Burton at the time. Right. And uh, But he really wanted to take it on. He loved the character of Batman as he says in the commentary. I wasn't a huge comic books fan but I did love Batman. That was my favorite comic by far just because I f- just the kind of 
phantom of the opera-like nature of it, and you know, I'd grown up watching horror films, and and also understood the psychology of the character, this sort of split personality, the kind of hiding in the shadows. Yeah, I, I knew right away that wanted to be more pure to that kind of uh, what the comic was originally. And I think Tim Burton was a great choice for the film. Yeah. I, I think he knew what he wanted for the film. I, he definitely knew what he did not want for the film, which was Robin, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I think Sam and I, from the very beginning, I mean, that was that was thing number one, no Robin. We're trying to do a new Batman movie. He just does not fit. And I even think, like, Bob Kane, he was happy that there was no Robin in it. And it's hard to come up with a psychological profile for a guy wearing a little red outfit with green booties, you know? So just thought, just avoid that and, and keep it pure to the, its original form that way. But yeah, the film comes out, is a huge, massive hit, mm -hmm. did $411 million worldwide, biggest thing, and that's a lot of money in 1989 that we're talking about here, so huge hit. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. I think in retrospect, it was pushing the boundaries out of its time, mm -hmm. but there's a campiness that is inevitable to it right. now yeah. in retrospect because he's been pushed so far past that point. Batman, yeah. But, I mean, obviously you have to give that movie the credit for basically bringing Batman into the modern era and kind of molding what he's become today. Yeah. You know what I well, mean? I mean, totally. I mean, because before this film, it was Adam West. That's mm -hmm. what everyone knew it for as far as live action Batman goes. So this film redefines that completely by making it dark, even if you don't find Tim Burton's version of it that dark anymore. Because of the realism that's been added to the character in future movies, of course, you look back on things that are a little fantastical, and of course you're going to judge it for being a little campy and over the top. Mm -hmm. But what this movie does is trend sets in so many different ways because after this, tons of superheroes are going to, their, their costumes are going to be made of latex yeah. and rubber and all of that stuff. And also, this film redefines what Batman's costume is because b never in the comic books before this movie was Batman's costume completely black. black. Yeah. And after this, in all movies except for later ones, it is all black. And the headpiece is the same. And I loved it. I remember seeing it for the first time time when it was an all-black costume and thinking yes that fits that works i love it right 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 yeah as a comic book guy i was like i'm totally in with this i love it that whole like stuck headpiece kind of oh, thing you yeah it, it, you're trying to create the silhouette of stockiness that right. it, it, it makes it a uh, very uncomfortable the costume yeah uh, you can't move your head at all right exactly and as keaton even talked about that years later in an interview he talked about how he couldn't move his head and so that forced him to use his whole torso, which in turn created this very well-known hero turn thing that they use outside of Batman even in other comic book movies. So it's really interesting how that even affected uh, comic book movies going forward. But it was a cool look, and I remember thinking mm -hmm. it was pretty pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. No, I loved it. I still do. But uh, one of the last things I did want to mention about the film was I remember the film getting a ton of shit because at the end, of course, they kill the Joker. And that was looked upon as, oh, my God, there's this iconic character from the comic books, and you killed him. You wasted him. Why didn't you just put him in Arkham Asylum kind of thing? Mm -hmm. I remember being on the side of the film for this because I thought it fit the story really well. What they did with the Joker and how they made the Joker the one that killed Bruce Wayne's parents, it brought that story full circle. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so I really liked that about it. And and it was one of those things that, no, the Joker is in this one, and now he's dead. Mm-hmm. And so I never really had a problem with it. But it was, I remember it being a big point of contention for a lot of fans. Mm-hmm. For <laughs> right, right. <laughs> On the comic book side of things, after Batman comes out, of course, Batman comics get much more grim and gothic and dark, and everyone is starting to embrace comic book life, so comic book sales are going through the roof on all comics. It's Mm -hmm. just skyrocketing. And now a word from us. Ooh, my favorite peeps. So let's say you want to reach out to us, ask us some questions, or make comments that are not negative and mean. No, no, we're very sensitive. Or if you want to participate in some of the questions we ask each other on the show, answer them so we can see your answers. Right. Boy, am I right. If we, if you're going to try and look for us on Instagram or Facebook, it is TFTFP Podcast. And if you're looking for us on Twitter, it's Podcast TFTFP. Right. Yeah, and we also have yes, yes, a shiny, mm-hmm. spick and span little email address Ooh. that goes by the name of tftfppodcast at gmail.com. Mm, rolls right off the tongue, it does. <laughs> yeah. And ma- make sure you like, subscribe, and review us because that helps us with the algorithm thing <laughs> that everybody else says and I'm supposed to say. Spoken like a true professional, Tim. So, um, I guess off the success of this movie, he gets granted the sequel. Uh, no, Tim Burton? No, no. Oh, no? No, basically what happens is is that Warner, apparently they didn't know what they had because they didn't sign Tim to a sequel. And so Tim goes off to Universal and he does Edward Scissorhands and really loves his experience doing that. Oh, okay. And he basically had complete creative control over the whole world of Edward Scissorhands. And so he really enjoyed that because he could ma- really make it his own. And when Warner comes back to him to offer him Batman 2, he basically is just like, well, you know, I did it already. Okay. But I'm sure not only with a little bit more money offered at Tim Burton, but also the creative control over the film, he really was able to come in and then this time make a Tim Burton film with Batman in it. And I think that's what the biggest intrigue for him was. Mm -hmm. So once they got Tim Burton back, equally important was getting back the man in the suit, Michael Keaton, back. And they did that with, I think, like $11 million, which he only got like $1 million for the first one. So it was a big payday for him, for sure. Yeah. And then once the decision is made that Penguin and Catwoman will be the villains of the film, they have to cast those. A lot of choices for the Penguin and Batman Returns before it ends up becoming Danny DeVito. Mm Mm-hmm. And the list goes like a diss. <laughs> we got Bob Hoskins, which is a very good choice. Yeah. Dustin Hoffman. Mm-hmm. John Candy. Mm, I don't know right. about that. Joe Pesci. Mm. Right. <laughs> you fucking talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Christopher Lloyd. Mm. Yeah. Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman seems too sophisticated for me. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, it's according to how they were going to go. Obviously, the way that they ended up going with it, 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 I don't think it would have worked. Right. But even thinking of Burgess Meredith and how he played it, you know. Right. What's already in the zeitgeist. Right. Uh, So John Goodman's another one, and Phil Collins. Oh, yes. (laughs) Susu Studio. What the hell? (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) There's a girl that's been on my mind. (laughs) 
think Christian Bale would love that. He would. But all right, I'm I'm not done though. Marlon Brando, if you could believe that, like he's also like, like that was about the time he did that. Don Juan DeMarco. Oh, I have no idea. We're pretty close. So, and, and if you remember, he is like 350 pounds by that point. Oh, yeah. I could have been a contender. Yeah. Uh, Plus, that movie probably would have never finished filming because he's so difficult. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, because that is before the uh, island of Dr. Moreau. Right. Oh, God. And uh, Dudley Moore uh, kind of caps off that list. So. Right. Meow. You know, we were also had to cast Catwoman in Batman mm. Returns. So some of the options they had going through the years here or through the casting was Annette Benning. Annette Benning was cast first and, and uh, you know, she'd done, you know, costume fittings and then get one a call one day and it was pretty close to shooting, I recall. And, uh, you know, saying that she couldn't do the movies because she was pregnant. And it was like, oh, uh, Congratulate! You know, it's like I was really happy for her, but then at the same time, I'm going, oh, yes. Susan Sarandon, mm-hmm. Gina Davis, right? Jodie Foster, mm-hmm. yeah. Demi Moore, Nicole Kidman, who who'll kind of get her chance soon right. enough. Right. <laughs> uh, Sigourney Weaver, Madonna, Ellen Barkin, Bridget Fonda, and Jennifer Beals. You can kind of see why, you know, they're leaning towards musicians again, because you got Phil Collins in there for some reason, which, I mean, you know, who knows, but then Madonna, you could totally see that, especially at that time. Yeah, she was doing a lot of movies, and she had done, like, Dick Tracy. Dick with, Tracy, right. Yeah. I know how you feel. You don't know if you want to hit me or kiss me. I get a lot of that. Because the first film was so successful, mm-hmm. this film started pulling in all these different companies that wanted to promote for the film. And so you had McDonald's and Coca-Cola and mm-hmm. Doritos and all of these different entities coming in that's trying to put their name associated with this, what's going to be a huge success, yeah. because they want to profit off of this. And so they are going to do mass promotion for this film. Right. And that is going to come back to bite them. Right. into McDonald's, where Batman Returns is on a dramatic series of 32-ounce collector cups with fine, crispy bat disc lids straight from the movie. Yeah, but I don't... It kind of... Hit and a miss, right? Well, I think in two ways, yeah, you're right. Uh, one is definitely expectation of audience. Audience went in, and I think they were expecting something like the first film, whereas it was kind of a crime action film. Mm-hmm. And this one definitely doesn't play that way. It's a Tim Burton film mm-hmm. with Batman in it that has uh, some action in it, but it all feels very claustrophobic because it's all indoors at this time. It's all on sound stages mm-hmm. and stuff. And you feel that in the movie for sure. Yeah, it was a way for us to create weather. They're in Burbank, so <laughs> we shot this all in Los Angeles this time as opposed to, to London. In fact, we had to actually cool down the sets to about 30, I don't know, some degrees for the penguins, the real penguins that we used in the film. So this movie comes out June 19th of 1992, and mm. I was there first day. I even remember before the movie came out and before they dropped trailers in the theaters, they had a world premiere for the trailer on MTV, and I remember tuning in that night and recording it and re-watching it a million times. Because, <laughs> right. Of course, this was before the internet, so you couldn't just look up trailers at the time. So mm. I watched that thing incessantly until, of course, the movie came out, and then afterwards, too, because that was my images for the movie that I could look at and watch over and over again. Above Gotham moves its greatest hero. Batman returns on June 19th. So when it comes out, I go see it 
and I loved it. And mm-hmm. I think some of that love for this film also hinges on if you were a Tim Burton film fan at the time. Right. Like, I saw Edward Scissorhands, and I really liked that film. I liked how he immerses you in this world that he creates. <laughs> and so he was doing the same thing with this Batman film. It definitely felt more a part of Tim Burton than anything else. Mm-hmm. But I embraced it, and I loved it. And I thought that the performances were great. I always looked at this film as if it were a operatic tragedy. Right. <laughs> because all the characters in this film are so tragic and all of them have really unhappy endings uh-huh. <laughs> and so it doesn't end happy and I know that there are those moments of absurdity in the film for sure <laughs> right. and I think that that just belongs in a Tim Burton world and if you're not willing to accept that and you're looking at that as campy then you're probably not a Tim Burton movie fan <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. that's what I think if looking back at Tim Burton's two Batman films if you're looking at the camp side of it you're probably seeing more Tim Burton film in it than you are just Batman being campy like Adam West camp. Right, right. But after doing Edward Scissorhands and, you know, started thinking about the characters like Catwoman and Penguin and Batman character and all, it just felt like there's still things in there that I liked and loved and was interested in. So, um, but I think if it had been right after the first one, I probably wouldn't have done it and, uh, you know. Some people think I probably should have done the second one, but... (laughs) I feel like my experience, I'm not 100%, but I didn't love this movie, and I can't remember if I saw it in the theater or not, or did I wait for VHS. Either way, I... I remember being pretty uh, kind of disappointed with it. I'm not really digging the whole uh, Chris Walken character too much. It wasn't working right. for me. So, right. So my first experience was uh, I kind of flushed the toilet on it because I had to, you know, we were I rewatched it for to prepare for this episode, and right. it was almost like watching it all over again. I I'd only remembered little flashes of it and all that stuff, right. and. I don't know. There's just something up. Certain things felt rushed to me. And um, uh, I think the the whole German expressionism thing was too much. Okay. Yeah. It was just forgettable. And I, I think the, the, the thing I remember the most, obviously, is Danny DeVito as the penguin because it was such a macabre and obscure right. performance uh, right. and, and representation of that character. But, I mean, I, I remember thinking I like that they're doing something bold with the character and making it dark. Right. But even then, it's just the way this, his story's unfolding is not really gelling for me. Gotcha. Well, that and just control of the birds, and I'm like, oh, no. What? Right. I mean, I know that's it's, it's a little too on the nose for me. Right. But I guess Batman controls the bats, so... <laughs> Right, right, yeah. Who am I? Who am I to cast a stone? Yeah, you hypocrite. Well, since you brought it up, let's talk a minute about Danny DeVito's The Penguin in this. I loved the redesign of The Penguin, and here's why. As a comic book fan, reading the comic books and seeing The Penguin character, I was never a huge fan of that character from the comic books because he was just like a funny-looking guy, and he liked birds and stuff, and it was always weird to me. So for the redesign, what they did, they, they literally made him The Penguin, and I really thought that that was an interesting take on it because it instantly changes the dynamic for the character for me anyway Mm -hmm. it makes it a tragic character that yes is evil for sure no doubt i am not a human being i am an animal cold-blooded 
But I mean, given the penguin, the background that they give him in this film, where he's basically abandoned by his parents, the Cobblepots, right. and left for dead in that river, they don't know what's going to take him where it takes him, and he's raised by the circus and penguins and all of that stuff. Mm. So he's kind of born into tragedy. So he has this tragic background. Bruce Wayne has his tragic background, and so these characters are really reflective of each other in a certain way, right. in a very highly stylized, dramatic way, for sure, but it fits in that operatic tragedy that I was talking about. So that's what I love about what they do with the penguin in this. Right, right. I come from like you. And like you, I want some respect, a recognition of my basic humanity. So when I first saw this in 92, I remember being enraptured in the story of the Penguin and also being a bit disturbed by it, too, uh-huh. which was the first time that ever happened to me. Because in the first Batman, I wasn't really disturbed by the Joker. I was having fun watching him. But well, yeah. I definitely remember there being essences of the Penguin's tragedy and also his, like, monstrous deeds, how fast he turns on people. That was pretty disturbing to me. But, yeah. I mean, I was 13 at the time I saw this in a the theater. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah, right. The Penguin being thrown away by his parents and the whole idea of the basket floating down that tube into where the penguins are to us that was the birth canal and the penguin was actually being born into the world that he wound up living in he's a bird who couldn't fly and misunderstood and a lot of times people are uh, misunderstood and uh, sometimes they're assholes but not oswald come on just eat your kids. Yeah, but I remember hearing when they cast Danny DeVito as the Penguin before I even knew what the redesign was going to even look like. I remember thinking, that's a really good casting. And then uh-huh. now seeing what the redesign was and what Danny DeVito did and as far as making that character his own, he's just so deliciously awful in it. <laughs> he's right. just really made it his own and really unique, and I can't imagine anyone else doing it. That's true. Yes. I mean, I, I, this version of the Penguin, I mean. But yeah. DeVito's The Penguin has some of the best lines in the whole film. Mr. Cobblepot, you are the coolest role model a young person could have. And you are the hottest young person a role model could have. Now, since we talked about The Penguin, we have to talk about the cat. All right. I think Michelle Pfeiffer was an inspired choice for Catwoman. I mean, not only is she absolutely gorgeous, but she has really interesting eyes. They're mm-hmm. really pretty, but they're also interesting. You can see a lot going on without her saying a lot. Yeah. Kind of like Michael Keaton. I met with Tim, and I found him very unusual and interesting, and he explained the part to me. And I thought it would be um, a couple of scenes and probably not a fully developed character. Then to my surprise, I read the script and I, f- I, I found she was just very, um, actually more complicated than I could have even imagined, just sort of psychologically. I really love the redesign on the Catwoman suit. Aside yeah. from being like that sleek sexiness to it, it also has the stitches, the very visible stitches, which uh-huh. to me represents kind of like her personality is very stitched together and it's coming apart as the movie goes on so I really love that about the look of it yeah and I don't know I just really like the Catwoman story in this I like the meek person that she is at the beginning trying to stand up for herself Uh how can you be so mean to someone so meaningless and then of course Max Shrek comes along and he pushes her out that window yeah right 
And that, that scene that Selena Kyle is brought back to life by the cats mm-hmm. is a big point of contention from a lot of people just because they don't like how supernatural it gets there or something like that. I absolutely love it and think it fits into the tone of the movie. And uh, it also, to me, represents and shows how much Tim Burton is a big fan of the universal horror films and the Hammer films because mm-hmm. it's filmed a lot like that. It's it, it's practically a Frankenstein monster coming back to life scene. Yeah. And I just love it. But um, the origins of the Catwoman with the, all the cats, just to give it a slightly mystical quality and, again, tie it to the animals, which, you know, with Batman, with bats and Catwoman, with cats and penguin penguins, uh, just... It's, it's it's both psychological and sort of fable-like, you know, where you kind of tie the two things together. And uh, that starts the Catwoman story right there, which is a revenge story. Well, yeah. I guess Penguin story is a revenge story, too. But he goes a little far with his revenge. Right. But <laughs> the, well, Catwoman, what I love about her revenge story is that she doesn't go right to killing Max Shrek. Uh-huh. She toys with him. She comes back. Maybe she has amnesia. She doesn't remember. She's a little bit more broad in personality. She blows up that store of his. All of that stuff I love because it's like a cat. A cat, when it has a bug, it's, it kills it eventually, but it toys with it first. It plays around with it. And that's what she's doing. And I just, I love that about this film. Who are you? Who's the man behind the bed? But, of course, her plan gets sidetracked by this Batman guy, and then she meets this Bruce Wayne guy, and she's attracted to him, and she sees something in him that's like her, wounded and lonely and tragic, but also has a definite mission. Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of revenge story in this dour setting that they have for uh, Gotham City in this is just hits all the right notes for me. It's very comic booky, and I just love it. But it's also reminiscent of all of the Tim Burton movies that I love at the time. Right, right, right. Well, and I guess the other thing for me, too, was the German expressionism of it all really comes out in this one because I'm, like, looking at it and I see Metropolis. It looks exactly like Metropolis to me. Just in case people don't understand what you mean by Metropolis. Oh, oh, Metropolis is like this classic German uh, future movie, silent movie from the 20s where there's the big robots and all that stuff and and the the statues in the background of, of the hall or whatever outside of the whatever city hall or whatever it is mm-hmm. they look a lot right. like that yeah the yeah. big robot yeah. in that thing christopher walken's character looks like the 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 scientist guy there or whatever the mm-hmm. guy who's running the big business in right. metropolis and yeah. um with the hair you know he has this big floofed out white hair right right yeah and then you pointed it out to me when I was because we were texting while I was rewatching it mm-hmm. that he is named Max Schreck, which is the name of the uh, character from Nosferatu, actor, which is actor. another German expressionist uh, right. silent film from the same era. And I was like, oh, come on, now it's a little too on the nose for well, me. Well, back then, I mean, I guess back back in the time, though, right? Exactly. I don't think it would have been that on the nose because right. the, you know the being a film geek was not quite what it is today. Exactly. You know, judging any artist in retrospect, of course, you know where they went. Mm-hmm. And especially Tim Burton, his visual style. And But right here in 92, when we're talking about Batman Returns comes out, this is right at the peak of when he starts putting a signature 
on his visual style. Yeah, so much right, so right. that when someone comes near his visual style, everyone will be like, oh, that's Burton-esque. It's named after him because it's so striking, a visual. Mm-hmm. And so that's where that point is in this film, that in looking back in retrospect, if you don't like Tim Burton films, you're going to be like, oh, man, he just really Tim Burton this thing out. Mm-hmm. But this was a new visual style at the time. He, he was building a whole world. And that's what Warner gave to him, basically. That's how they got him back. They said, come back and make a Tim Burton film and put Batman in it. And that's what he did. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Batman's too dark. Oh, no, Batman Returns is even worse. No, some people say it was lighter. Some people say it was darker. Well, how can something be lighter and dark, you know, yeah, yeah. or dark? Uh, yeah. So I get confused by people's reactions right. to things. Switching over to Keaton real quick, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what he's doing and what I love about his Bruce Wayne and Batman in this film is, you know, one of the main things he does in Batman, I guess Tim and he said that they went in and Batman had way more lines in this one and they both started just pulling those lines out yeah, and saying the less, less is more with Batman yeah, so just less. pull all of those lines out love that they did that with Batman yeah right right yeah. thanks for saving the day Batman I'm afraid the circus gang is back we'll see but there's a scene where the Penguin makes his reemergence into Gotham City in a real heroic way. And uh-huh. he's on the news and telling his story. And the way that Keaton plays Bruce watching him on that TV, you can tell he feels a lot of empathy for him because he can see that there is a lost soul in there that he identifies right, with. Right. And that's a great scene, the way he does it. And he, the way he even says... His parents... But, I mean, the dynamic in this film, the thing that holds this film up for me is his chemistry with Michelle Pfeiffer as Selena Kyle. Mm -hmm. His Bruce and her Selena Kyle is magic on screen to me, the way that they play off of each other, and they're feeding into each other's egos and and insecurities. Right, right. right. You got kind kind of a dark side, don't you? No darker than yours, Bruce. And again, with Keaton's performance here, you see that when he's attracted to someone like Selena Kyle, he, he becomes a bit aloof, not sure what he's saying, but he's confident even in the things that he's saying wrong. I love that. You know what? I mistook me for somebody else. Sorry. You mean mistook me? I mistook me. Yeah, yeah. That's what I, isn't that what I said? No, I don't think so. But uh, their chemistry is great in this film. There was uh, apparently a relationship between Pfeiffer and Keaton before this movie shot. Oh, okay. And, so, and you, I feel that that helped this performance. You can feel the chemistry between the two of them mm-hmm. when, when in the Batman and Catwoman suits and outside of it. And that scene where they're, they're on the date and they're at, she's at Wayne Manor mm-hmm. and he's talking to her, you can see him kind of tiptoeing around telling her things about himself because he's insecure that he's going to run her off. Right, right. And I love that about that scene because on the opposite side, she has been a person who has tiptoed around not wanting to hurt someone's feelings. And now she's out and she's open and she's more free as a person. And she's just being blunt and saying what she wants and everything. And this takes him back. So it's a great the way the chemistry plays off of each other. The duality between the two that still see this spark in each other, something recognizable. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love that. I think this so far, again, not having seen the Batman that is coming out in 2022. This is the representation, the perfect representation on screen for the chemistry between Batman and Catwoman. What went wrong? Hang on. I think I know. You kept things from her. No, told her everything. Uh And the truth frightened her? Well, there are two truths. You know, and she had trouble reconciling them because I had trouble... uh, reconciling them. 
Then we get to the ballroom masquerade scene, which mm-hmm. is just, oh man, I love this scene. This is the crutch of the film for me as far as the emotional crutch of the film for me. Yeah. The scene between Bruce and Selena here is so well done because you can see that one, they're represented being at a masquerade ball, not wearing masks. Uh-huh. So I love that and the way it's commented on. You take up our costumes. I guess I'm tired of wearing masks. Me too. Because this is the end of the plot thread for Selena Kyle. Right. She's come here to exact revenge on Max Shrek at this masquerade ball. And what's great about the scene between Keaton and Pfeiffer is you can see Selena slowly unraveling in this scene. She's starting to come apart a bit. And Bruce sees her and, of course, is attracted to her, feels that connection between them but then also feels this weirdness and you can see him reacting to her unraveling in front of him so when she pulls that gun out and he sees it he realizes like wait what the hell's going on and his shock at that moment the way he responds is so great it's the most real and that's weird in this hyped up tim burton style version of batman these are the most real moments between these two characters. Aren't you tired of this sanctimonious Robert Baron always coming out on top when he should be six feet under? I'm sure you have a lot of problems with your boss, but I mean, who the hell do you think you are? I don't know anymore, Bruce. <laughs> and then they realize that they're both Catwoman and Batman. Right. Their reaction, too, is also priceless. I love that. Mm-hmm. Does this mean we have to start fighting? It's one of those scenes that works so well for me, I think, just because the setting is so beautiful, the acting is so beautiful, and then they have that Susie and the Banshees song face-to-face in the background that is weaving the Catwoman theme throughout that actual song. Mm. And uh, just beautiful. Love that scene. That is the crutch emotional crutch of the whole entire Batman franchise that Tim Burton did for me right there in that scene. Right, I right. absolutely love it. And this scene, in my opinion, will go on to try to be replicated in a future Batman movie to less success for sure. Okay. I hate to stay. But yeah, I you know I could go on and on about this film. I absolutely love that it's set in the Christmas setting. Right, yeah, love that right. superheroes for some reason put in the Christmas setting. Mm-hmm. There used to be comic books that would come out that would be Batman or Superman or Spider-Man or something, and they would be Christmas specific. Mm-hmm. Loved those episodes. Is there something about a superhero in the winter with the snow and Christmas setting? I don't know why. It just totally calls to me. <laughs> well, come what may. Merry Christmas, Mr. Wayne. Merry Christmas, Albert. Goodwill toward men. And women. And uh, real quick, just to hit on two things before we wrap this particular film up, is that, again, the death of the villain at the end, which is the penguin, he meets his demise, and that death always stayed with me and as a 13 year old kid sitting in that theater for the first time and seeing that death him spitting up that blackish greenish blood that he has and yeah, struggling yeah, yeah. for breath as he tries to kill Batman with his last breath and then mm-hmm. that, that whole thing just 
totally freaked me out as a kid and <laughs> I remember loving that this movie this Batman movie is freaking me out and, and making me feel bad for this evil character right and right. as you know the penguins come out and put him in that water and everything so that score that plays as they're pushing him down into the water that's done once again brilliantly by uh, Danny Elfman mm-hmm. he creates themes for each of the characters and it's every single one very distinctive and beautiful and tragic uh-huh. and uh, that theme just really gets to me still to this day I, I when I watch it again I just I feel so bad like my heart swells <laughs> right. when that music kicks in on that scene yeah. even though it's for a really despicable character And then lastly, I already mentioned it, but the Batman score done by Danny Elfman, again, Uh keeps the Batman score, pulls it over into this one, adds a little bit of flourishes to it, but keeps it pretty much the same. But the theme that he gives for the Penguin is both tragic and creepy and menacing. And the theme that he gives for Catwoman is very playful Uh and tragic at the same time. Love it. Just, it's so beautifully done because... All of them are adventurous and operatic and elegant. Yeah. It's, I just love it. They're so lush and beautiful. And this will always be one of those stories to me that I encapsulate it with the music so much that I could put on this movie, turn off the sound, put on that music, mm. and it'll play just as well for me because... All the emotional beats are hitting with that music. <laughs> yeah. That's how beautiful this thing is linked to me. So I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Right. Now, my love for this film, of course, is in a small... Well, it, it was in a smaller group, especially at the time it was released. Yeah. Because it came out in 92, all right? Now, that's the same year that another movie that I loved that a lot of people hated at the time, which was Alien 3. Uh-huh. So both of these films kind of have seen a, a, a resurgence of love as time has gone by. Uh-huh. People are coming back around to these films and saying, you know what, there's a lot more in these films than I remembered or that I thought that I liked as a kid or as a teenager or something like that and so they're starting to get retrospected love yeah i know yeah here's the thing you can for for me personally revisiting alien 3 i get it now right i I feel like it was just a little ahead of its time and under budgeted Mm -hmm. but i my rewatch of batman returns i did that that didn't happen for me right you know and i'm not saying that everyone feels that way i'm just saying that over the years especially after all of the batman films that came after this Mm -hmm. uh this one is looked upon in a more positive light and i think it's probably for a lot of different reasons one for the love of keaton that's kind of caught up with everyone and that that fills that void of uh yeah the nostalgia and all that right exactly and i think also so many years have gone by now that if you watch it now and it's so far removed from the 89 film it's it's not immediately compared to it like it was back then mm-hmm. right second one they thought was like uh, I upset McDonald's because they thought it was too dark they thought that the black stuff coming out of uh, the penguin's mouth was too close to the ingredients of their food or something <laughs> it was too vile you know it's like you want to treat this stuff seriously not like an ice capade show or something you know and right. it gets more and more away from making a film and you know you're just like I said you're sitting in a room before you've got characters designed for the film you know it's like they need it for the t-shirt they need it for the cup you know they need it for all that and it's just like right 
All right. So, mm-hmm. not so successful. And right. so. I mean, it did, it did like 260 worldwide, and the first one did like 411 or a little bit higher than that. So, it was obviously a cause for alarm at Warner Brothers. Was he axed from the Batman? Well, Tim Burton, I mean. Well, yeah, he tells a funny story about that where he said. I remember toying with the idea of doing another one, and I remember going into Warner Brothers and having a meeting. I'm going, you know, you could do this, we could do that. And they go, they go like, Tim, don't you want to do like a smaller movie now? You know, just something that's more. And like about, you know, half hour into the meeting, I go, you don't want me to make another one, do you? And they go, oh, no, 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 no. And, I, and I, I just said, no, I know you did. And so I just, uh, we just stopped it right there. So yeah, they, they kind of didn't want him to be involved in this, especially after they sold Batman Returns to the hilt to all of these companies and marketing and McDonald's and all of this mm-hmm. stuff. And then the movie comes out, and of course there's death, and, and there's a lot of sexual innuendo in the film, and yeah. there's all of this stuff that, that all of the people who are promoting for the film start to pull back and say, well, we can't promote this film. It's got too much adult stuff in it. This is not right. a kid's movie at all. Right. What are you doing? I remember thinking that on the rewatch, like, wow, there's a lot of sexual innuendo, like you said, mm-hmm. like a lot of it, like right. it's every other line, you know what I mean? Especially right. with, with, uh, yeah, Penguin. Catwoman character. Oh, yes. Yeah, and him. Yeah, both of them. Right. Both, yeah, both yeah of them. I, I can honestly say that as a 13 year old when I first saw this, I loved all the sexual innuendo coming from Catwoman. Yeah. All of that stuff where she's like, maybe I'll just give myself a bath right here. And even the the penguin, when he first sees a Catwoman in his lair, he comes in and his first line is, Just the pussy I've been looking for. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's creepy. Yeah, exactly. So Warner obviously saw the backlash that was coming, and they were just like, whoa, 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 we got to reassess what we're doing with this property. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So anyway, June 1992, Batman Returns comes out. September of 1992, Batman the Animated Series hits Fox Network. Yes, right. We wanted the show to be appealing to kids because we knew that it was, you know, they were our primary uh, intended audience. But at the same time, we wanted to show that we ourselves would watch as adults. So we talked about this show in our That's Kid Stuff episode, so we won't get too in detail. But uh, the significance of this show, not just by pulling comic lore into Batman once again, but also following the movies. They're drawing a lot from from the universe that Tim Burton created. Right. No, absolutely. And so they're meshing both of those worlds, but as a comic book fan, seeing what they were doing with some of the goofier characters from the comic book, they're taking them and putting them in the show, but then they're redesigning their origin story and taking characters I thought that were super goofy and making them super fucking cool. (laughs) Gotcha. I mean, just the redesign that they did on the story for Mr. Freeze in that episode, Heart of Ice, that's such a great episode, and they really redesigned Designed the origin story of Mr. Freeze to really, I don't know, encapsulate something emotional about it to where I actually gave a crap about the character because I didn't really in the comic book. As we, as we mentioned in our Kid Stuff episode that mm-hmm. Kevin Conroy is the voice yes. and he kind of, in a way, becomes the voice of Batman. Oh yeah, he's my forever Batman. I went to exactly what I know, which is the theater. And so I used my imagination to fill that out. And for me, with my voice, 
try to create a dark, gritty, filthy New York street. And Mark Hamill becomes the voice of the Joker yes. in a way. Oh. Yeah, kind of stealing the thunder in a weird way from Jack Nicholson. You yeah. Know? One of the things it said at the top of the, re- of the audition script, don't think Nicholson. What a relief that was. Because I figured if you're going to just try and imitate Jack Nicholson, you're going to really suffer. Because as wonderful he is in the movie, Jack is Jack. All we can do is imitate, and that's not something I wanted to do. No, totally. Yeah, he's, I mean, that's my go-to Joker as well. And he's so influential on the character with that voice and laugh that they get actors after he leaves the part to Mm -hmm. copy him. You can't even escape into madness. But then also, the rest of the cast that they get is absolutely amazing. Like, since we already talked about Mr. Freeze, we got an actor by the name of Michael Ansara who does the voice of Mr. Mm -hmm. Freeze. I absolutely love Mm -hmm. the voice that they chose to go with for that character of Mr. Freeze because it's kind of robotic. It's very non-emotional. I just love it. Rest well, my love. The monster who took you from me will soon learn that revenge is a dish best served cold. And then I I would have never, ever imagined pulling someone uh, like Richard Mole, who I only knew from playing Bull on Night Court, mm-hmm. getting him to do the voice of Harvey Dent and Two-Face. He's exceptional in it. Right. There's just one problem. What's that? You're talking to the wrong Harvey. You got one of my favorite character actors, David Warner, coming in to do the voice of Ray Shao Ghoul in it. The minute I heard his voice matched with that character, that's what I heard in comic books thereafter, just because it was such a perfect fit for the comic book counterpart, of course. Right. Allow me to introduce myself. I am he who is called Raish Al Ghul. You got the great musician and sometimes actor Paul Williams coming in to do the voice of the Penguin, and mm-hmm. you can kind of see how they're matching Danny DeVito's look of the Penguin, because they're incorporating that look into the show as the Penguin, mm-hmm. but also they're using a similar voice to what, like, Burgess Meredith sounded like. Ah, but this time I'll reclaim my perch in high society as an upstanding bird. And of course, before Ron Perlman was Hellboy or Clay on the uh, Sons of Anarchy, Mm -hmm. he was Clayface on Batman the Animated Series. And he does great. His voice is perfect for it. There is no Hagen. It's only me now. Clayface. And then, come on, my childhood crush... Adrian Barbeau comes in and does the voice of Catwoman, and she's yeah. just so supreme in it. Like, her voice is so sexy and perfect for that character. <laughs> right. Never trifle with the affections of a woman. Until next time. And then Creme de la Creme. Talk about fan service here. I was geeking out because there's an episode called Beware the Grey Ghost. Mm-hmm. And when Bruce is a little boy, he watches this TV show about a vigilante character named the Grey Ghost. Right. And that character is voiced by Adam West. So it's full circle right there. Right. And he comes in, does the voice of that. The real nice little honor to uh, Adam West for what he brought to the character and everything. Mm-hmm. And it's just this show hits on all the right cylinders for me. Right. I used to admire what the Grey Ghost stood for. I'm not the Grey Ghost. So the showrunners and producers of the show was a guy named Bruce Tim and Eric Radomsky. Uh-huh. And Bruce Tim has gone on to actually be kind of what 
Kevin Feige is to the Marvel universe. That's mm-hmm. what uh, Bruce Tim is to the uh, DC animated universe. He he makes sure that it stays at the quality that it is. That, well, I believe it is anyway. Right. And uh, yeah, they put out great co- content. But this show was just so groundbreaking in so many ways. And they ended up uh, when they were doing the show using uh, as a template those early 1940s Max Fleischer Superman cartoons. Right. And so that was really great because you can see the fluidity of the animation and stuff. Yeah. And they wanted to make sure that they transported that over to the feel of Batman the Animated Series. And you can really tell. Right. It, it was funny because Eric and I were both um, really big fans of the Fleischer Superman cartoons. Um, but we didn't actually want to just recreate that look. We kind of wanted to put our own spin on the superhero world, you know, in, in, incorporating you know, film noir and German expressionism and art deco. Um, but we specifically were trying to do something that wasn't exactly Fleischer-inspired. And then one day we were meeting with Gene McCurdy, and she kind of said, you know, the show should look like a Fleischer Superman cartoon. And we're just like, yes, it should. It's like, yeah, we were trying to not do that, but it totally makes sense to do that. So, yeah, why fight it? And they're definitely pulling from a lot of different aspects of Batman, the comic book and the Tim Burton movies. One of the main things they're pulling from the Tim Burton movies, though, is the uh, Danny Elfman score. Yeah, and it's iconic because when the Batman animated series comes out, they adopt yeah. that music for that show. And yeah. I think what I read was that eventually they kind of did their own little thing after the fact. But yeah, it's still well, Shirley Walker takes it and builds right, on it. Right, yeah. And because the show is a much larger canvas to tell Batman stories on, mm-hmm. uh, of course, Shirley Walker, the composer for the uh, music of the show, she has a much larger canvas to be able to compose a lot of different music, right. building off of what Danny Elfman did and really making it her own. Mm-hmm. And and some of the music in the show is just stunningly good, especially for a kid's TV show, let alone just a TV show, period. Mm-hmm. And Shirley Walker's Batman theme, I think, is really just sweeping and epic, and it really enraptures you in every one of the episodes, Mm -hmm. and also do variations of all the other characters. So she had a Joker theme, and she had a Penguin theme, and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So she was able to play with all those different characters and really have fun with the world. And and she's since passed away in 2006, unfortunately, but she really has made a great contribution to the legacy of Batman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's probably not even thought about these days, but uh, back then, to use what Batman the Animated Series does, which is real guns and real bullets, machine guns and all that stuff, Mm -hmm. because on cartoons back then, it was, you have to use lasers because it's too violent to use real bullets. Right. You know, we used used to make that argument with the the censors all the time. It's like, you know, if you've got guys in a 1940s-looking metropolitan city shooting laser guns at Batman... It's just not going to work. Nobody's going to buy it for a minute. I think that they really went into the storytelling on this show, not from a let's write it down to kids. I think that they basically wrote it to, hey, let's write a good story that we think is good, and then kids will catch up to it. And if they're not entertained when they're kids, they'll like it just because Batman's in it. Uh So if you watch the stories, there's a lot of stuff that's addressed in it that's like, this is not for kids at all. Like They deal with in the Clayface episode, which was always a villain that I thought was kind of dumb in the comic books, but Mm -hmm. on the show... They made him really sympathetic, and he's dealing with, like, addiction to this product that ends up turning him into Clayface. And I remember thinking that that's really bold. Oh, yeah. The face cream? You used up your last jar yesterday. No! I gotta have more. Now, see? 
It wore off. Look, I can't fix it anymore. Relax, Matt. Don't tell me to relax, you idiot. Here, give it to me. I was lucky I could hang on to that much. You were holding out on me? I had to, Matt. If I didn't, you wouldn't have any now. But yeah, that show comes out, is a huge hit, and in 1993, I think at Christmas time, they bring out the Batman Mask of the Phantasm feature film. Your angel of death awaits. What is it? It's an animated? Yeah, yeah, it's it's an animated version of the Batman animated TV series show. You didn't get a chance to see it, though, huh? No. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's just a feature film version of the TV show. It goes into Bruce's, like, history a little bit and the Joker's origin a bit. It's it's a, it's a really cool film. It's just, like, like you said, a continuation of the animated show. Oh, kind of like they did with the Transformers thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely better quality, but, but yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, we had worked on it. You know, very hard for an entire year, and it comes down into the fall, and we have a Christmas Day release. And it gets to be October, November, and we realize we're not seeing anything. The, the word is, is mum on this. And this was 93, so whatever Disney had coming out that year, I think it was Nightmare Before Christmas or Aladdin, that movie is coming, and it's a snowball, and it's coming and coming, and there are clips being shown on TV. And Batman, not so much. There, it's it, Nobody is really talking about it. But yeah, it didn't do that well upon release, but it is thought of in retrospect as one of the better Batman films ever made. Okay, I've never seen it, yeah. If we switch over real quick to the comic book side of things, in January of 93, Bane makes his first appearance in Batman Vengeance of Bane. Mm -hmm. And then the very next month, we would get the ultimate Bane story in comic book form, and that's Nightfall. Right. When we fought before, I broke the bat. Today, I break the man. What's also happening in 1993 is that Warner Brothers is starting to put the feelers out to what exactly can they do next with their Batman franchise. They already know that they don't want to go the way of Tim Burton anymore. Yeah. So who would they pick to lead the charge in their new quote-unquote Batman future? Mm. Yeah, the suits at the studio thought my dark life of fighting crime alone needed a few more heroes in it, even though I really don't need anyone at any time ever because I'm totally awesome and Batman works alone. Well, you see, <laughs> there is a gentleman by the name of Joel Schumacher who has been a longtime director in Hollywood, and he had a big hit in 93 with a film called Falling Down with Michael Douglas. Uh-huh. So once they line up Joel Schumacher for a director, then they have to go and make sure that they have their Batman secured. So they go to Michael Keaton, mm -hmm. and in an interview, he said this is how the meetings with Joel Schumacher went down. The director who, was, who directed the third one, I said, I just can't do it. He, he, at one point, after more than a couple of meetings, where I kept trying to rationalize doing it and hopefully kind of talking him into saying, I think we don't want to go in this direction. Mm -hmm. Really, I think we ought to go in this direction. And he wasn't going to budge. But I remember one of the things I walked away going, oh, boy, I can't do this. Or he asked me, he said, I don't understand why everything has to be so, so dark and everything's so sad. And I went, wait a minute. Do you know how this guy got to be Batman? <laughs> have you, have uh -huh. you read? I mean, it's pretty simple. And so it, it was always Bruce Wayne. You know, it was never Batman. To me, it was, I know the name of the movie is Batman, and, and it's hugely iconic and, and very cool and culturally iconic. And because of Tim Burton, 
artistically icon, icon. Yeah. he's a true artist i always knew from the get-go it was bruce wayne that was the secret bruce wayne who's that guy what kind of person does that and so with that the news comes out that michael keaton exits the role yeah i was personally heartbroken. Right. <laughs> but, well, you have a list to read to us of potential cast members, right? I got a list. Okay. Let's, let's, uh, let me read them off to you. <laughs> For Batman in Batman Forever. Right. We could have seen Keanu Reeves. Whoa. We also could have seen either <laughs> Alec or William Baldwin. Ooh. Alec was like, screw you, I'm going to do the shadow. <laughs> yeah, much better choice. <laughs> Johnny Depp, which that wouldn't have worked out, because Tim Burton would have just been fired off of that, and they're already pals. Right. You know what I mean? So, right. Uh, Ra- uh, Ray Fiennes, hmm. Ethan Hawke, and Kurt Russell. Whoa. My boy, Kurt. You got a boner for that last one. Thank God he said no to that. (laughs) Yeah. And he said yes to Fast and Furious 7 or whatever. (laughs) Call me Captain Ron, boss. Everybody does. So in Batman Forever, there's the Riddler. So Mm -hmm. we we had a a handful of choices for this. Uh, Right. Robin Williams again, which I remember that was a big name going around too. Like like it was for the Joker earlier. I think he was still in big contention to be... the Riddler before Jim Carrey was. Yes, I called Robin he and said, said, play the Riddler. And he said, I'd love to. And then a year went by and he was still saying, I'd love to, Joel, but he couldn't say yes. So if a year goes by and a great artist isn't saying yes, there's a reason. Either it's me or the project or the part. There's a reason. Michael Jackson, which is hilarious. <laughs> That's just ignorant. That's just ignorant. Uh, John Malkovich again. Adam Sandler, I, I don't think so, because he was a little too Billy Madison at that right. point. Oh, yeah. Steve Martin, which I, I don't <laughs> see Steve Martin taking a step down yeah. like that. He's a little too proud. Yeah. And Matthew Broderick, which would have been absolutely horrible. <laughs> Sorry, but no. The only charisma he ever had was as Ferris Bueller. Otherwise, Ferris Bueller, he's, right. he's a... He's, He's like, I'm going to have it once, and that's an 86, and after that, I'm spent. And then, so to go with the Riddler, uh, we had uh, Two-Face, and uh, this is a pretty, like, A-list here. Yeah. Al Pacino. Oof. Robert De Niro. Mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood. Right. And Robert Redford. Yeah, it's and it's weird, too. This I don't see any, well, maybe Al Pacino. No. I think at this point in time, this is what, 90 what? 95. 95. 95. Okay. I don't see those. Those guys are all like peaking at the end of their primes. Right. You know what I mean? Like heat for both yeah. Al and De Niro. Clint Eastwood's pretty far off, close off of uh, uh, Unforgiven. Right. And Robert Redford sneakers. Right. But yeah. uh, just kidding. But um, I don't see why any of them would be... I, I, at the clout that they're at with the the kind of right. career they have created up until that point, I don't see any of them taking that choice. Right. I think Warner maybe was just thinking, money, money, money. Maybe right. that'll... They hadn't hit that stage yet. They do Now they were. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I know, right. Well, not... I don't think Eastwood would ever, and I don't think Robert no. Redford would ever. Yeah. No, no. What about the boy Wonder? The boy Wonder. <laughs> Under Ruse. Robin. Mm. 
So Leonardo DiCaprio, which I right. I cannot see that at all. <laughs> I I don't know, but he hadn't really. The had he had Titanic yet? No, that's in '97. So this is interesting for Robin Christian Bale, <laughs> right? Who ends up becoming Batman himself later? Ewan McGregor, which I guess I could kind of see. Right. There's a kind of boy innocence to him, I oh, guess. Yeah. That kind of similar to Chris O'Donnell. For sure. And Matt Damon, I, maybe. Jude Law and Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark Wahlberg wasn't... Nobody was taking him seriously yet. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, right. So whatever on that one. He was still Marky Mark at that point. It's like, hey, Alfred. How's your mother? I'm just trying to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, it's about that time. And, uh, yeah, Val Kilmer eventually ends up becoming Batman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he had that crazy story where he said he was in a bat cave in Africa or something when he got the offer to be Batman. And I don't know about that, but did, uh, what did you think when you heard that uh, Val Kilmer was announced as the new Batman? Uh, when I, yeah, when I heard that Michael Keaton wasn't coming back and that Val Kilmer was stepping in, I thought, yeah, that could work. Right. And uh, kind of being excited about the whole new reinvention of it. Especially after yeah, how I felt for, with Batman Returns, I'm like, yeah, maybe it's time to restart it. Right. And uh, Val Kilmer seems like an interesting choice to me, you know. Right. You were a fan of his before. Yeah, I was a fan before. Yeah, because I really loved the movie Thunderheart at the time, and um, okay. The Doors was pretty impressive, you know. Mm-hmm. I have to admit, and uh, you know, all the way back to. Uh, Top Secret. <laughs> big, <laughs> big fan of Top Secret. Yeah, I know, me too. You gotta straighten your up. Yeah, straighten your up. You gotta give it a push. Yeah, give it a shove. But then, you know, once the movie comes out, it's just ridiculous. And, <laughs> and you're like, what? Oh, never mind. Never mind. I see without seeing. To me, darkness is as clear as daylight. What am I? Well, my experience when they announced that they cast uh, Val Kilmer as a new Batman, mm-hmm. I was never a big Val Kilmer fan. I, I mean, I didn't dislike him at all. I just, you know, I liked uh, The Doors and I liked uh, Real Genius right. and I liked, as you said, Top Secret and a mm-hmm. few films that he was in. I wasn't crazy about Thunderheart or anything like that. So mm-hmm. when they announced him, I, it wasn't like an immediate like, ooh, yeah, he's going to do great. It was just kind of like, oh, I guess we'll see kind of thing. Right. It was a struggle for me to get a performance past the suit. And it was frustrating until I realized that my role in the film was just to show up and stand where I was told to. I mean, as a Batman comic book fan, I got used to having different artists come in and give their interpretation of what the Batman universe would be like. Mm -hmm. So, like, Frank Miller would come in and do his own Batman and the way his Batman world would work and how his Batman looks and all of that stuff. And then he'd have another artist like Dennis O'Neill come in, and that was his own universe. He wouldn't follow the through line of anything Frank Miller was doing. They were two separate universes. Mm -hmm. And I was used to that. So when I heard that they were going this new way with Val Kilmer as the new Batman, my in my head, I just thought, oh, okay, so there. this is a new world. This is not going to be connected to the Keaton movies at all. They're just going a brand new comic book way. So, Which is accurate, right? Well, no, that's the weird thing because they no. connect it through certain lines in the film. Oh, they do? It's a weird thing. Oh, you know, I just rewatched it too, and I, I, it was so... <laughs> Forgettable, right? Yes, yeah. right. You're counting on the winged Avenger to deliver you from evil, aren't you, my friend? So rounding out the cast, you got Tommy Lee Jones coming in playing Harvey Dent, 
slash Two Face. I mean, the idea every day was to uh, to be outrageous. Uh, these DC comic book villains are, are outrageous. That's the point. And there's a story that was told. I think it was by the producer of the film that he had worked with uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Joel Schumacher on the client, which is what made them think of bringing Tommy Lee Jones onto this film. And the producer said that he sent. Tommy Lee Jones the script for Batman Forever and Tommy Lee Jones told him I read it I don't get it and you can tell right right yeah yes you can tell there's been so many years passed since the movie came out in 95 that uh, there's stories out now about how difficult Tommy Lee Jones was to work with and how he apparently did not get along or like Jim Carrey at all and even those stories come out about uh, Val Kilmer being very diva-like on the set mm-hmm. and uh, Joel Schumacher, even though Joel Schumacher says that Val Kilmer is still his favorite Batman. Yeah. Schumacher called him a psychopath or a psych- psychotic or something like that in one of the interviews. <laughs> so it wasn't <laughs> right, a fun right. set, apparently. Well, I was just going to say, we, I just watched the Val documentary, and he spends his time talking about it mm-hmm. yeah. or having his son talk about it for him. But, um, <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> and uh, in his writings and uh, right, yeah, right. The way he fra- framed it, I I never know with Val Kilmer where. Yeah, he's weird. You know, he's ever not acting. So mm-hmm. I, you know what I mean. So yeah. I don't know how honest this his recollection is on this or whatever. But um, right, he kind of says that uh, you know, kind of the dream job. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, ever since I was a little kid, me and, and my now dead brother were making movies playing batman and superman and all this kind of stuff and now i get to be the guy and then when i get there i put on the outfit it's awkward they change things (laughs) they turn up the dial on a lot of this thing and he said he was embarrassed by the costume Mm -hmm. and also he felt isolated by the inability to hear and uh, move his head and all that stuff so right from his claim that as soon as he started he was already done off <laughs> yeah right yeah you can kind of tell in some areas of the film right. for sure you see i'm both bruce wayne and batman not because i have to be now because i choose to be and we definitely can't fail to mention that uh, at this time a huge breakout star right. jim carrey was cast as the riddler and that takes this movie i think tonally and every other way in a completely different direction right was that over the top i can never tell <laughs> i you know i don't remember whether that was in the script or not but i know that it was absolutely you know it was like the perfect way for me to kind of comment on my own persona you know <laughs> It was just perfect. To me, this character was absolutely overjoyed with his own thought process. Bringing in that character and and, and as Jim Carrey, mm-hmm. and Jim Carrey is basically the mask or right. Ace Ventura. He's doing Ace Ventura bits in the middle of the movie. Yeah. Edward Nygma, come on down! You're the next contestant on Brain Drain! And, and I'm like... You're just you're just screaming through this whole fucking thing. Just <laughs> right. Shut up for a little bit. Right, right. I mean, you got to look at it in perspective that Jim Carrey at this time right. had done something that I don't think any other actor at that time had done, and that is in one year, which was his breakout year in '94, he had Ace Ventura, huge hit, The Mask, huge, huge. hit, and then right. Dumb and Dumber, huge hit. Yeah. All of those, I think, hit over a hundred million dollars. So he was in a special place. So there was no way he was going to be able to come at this in any other way but in that manic 
Ace Ventura, yeah. the mask kind of way. They wanted him to be Jim Carrey on that, and that's what he brought to this film. Right. He plugged into that energy, and he let it rip, you know? Right. He's the big star, so let's let him make this happen. Right. Exactly. Well, let's just say I could write a hell of a paper on a grown man who dresses like a flying rodent. Then they bring in Nicole Kidman as Dr. Chase Meridian, Batman's love interest in this film, and yeah. I, I just feel bad for her in this film because they don't give her anything to do except be arm candy for whatever guy she's standing next to. I mean, right. her opening line sounds just like what a doctor would say when she first meets Batman. <laughs> right. Hot entrance. It's like, really, guys? Is that, <laughs> that what we're going with right. here, this line? All right, then. Right. And then rounding everything out, they got Chris O'Donnell being brought in to play uh, Dick Grayson, yeah. a.k.a. Robin the Boy Wonder. And that's... Uh, tough job <laughs> right i need a name bat boy nightwing i don't know what do you think what's a good sidekick name i mean i guess we should get into the movie itself it was bad <laughs> it was really bad and my wife was kind of curious she's like because we had just watched the val thing together oh. so she was kind of like oh, okay right 15 minutes in she's like i'm out this is terrible <laughs> she's like she's like she's just like can you believe this how embarrassing this is this right. is embarrassing and i'm like yeah yeah it's well, bad i guess we should probably get into our stories uh, because See, I, I, I let me just say my experience was is this is when i was working in a video store it was like right. a small chain in arizona and um mm -hmm. i think i would basically meet friends after work and just get fucking hammered <laughs> you know just drink the shit out of beers and i would bring screeners with me oh right yeah so i'd be able to watch them like a, a few weeks before they come out or a week before they come out and mm -hmm. I, I, batman forever was one of them right so <laughs> i think the most i ever saw of it was probably the first half an hour to 40 minutes before i'm seven beers in <laughs> and drunk. nobody knows what's going on anymore <laughs> and we're fucking flipping tables and <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. Right. Nobody's watching TV anymore. Right. <laughs> so that was my only experience with it. Right. right, right, right. I remember going early in 95, there was a movie that came out, I think like in March, uh, called Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman and Morgan Freeman and Rene Russo. Yeah. And at the beginning of that movie, the trailer for Batman Forever was. So that was the first time I was ever seeing footage of it. Uh -huh. And... I wouldn't say I was 100% on board, but I, I did like, like, what happened was they used the Danny Elfman score throughout the trailer. Yeah. So that won me over pretty fast. But then at the same time, I was struggling with it because I'm like, well, it looks kind of new, but also the same. And they're using the Danny Elfman score. So are they trying to link it to the other one? I, I didn't get right. it. But I was still hoping that, okay, well, it'll be a separate thing. because the, the look, look is, is completely different. Right. Too. Yeah, exactly. So the music that they're using, I'm used to. So I'm like, okay, is it connected to the other ones? Or not? So it was hard for me to wrap my head around what they were doing but i was hoping it was going to be this new interpretation uh -huh. so june 16th that movie comes out i go see it with some friends and we're all excited about it and then but right at the beginning when it starts out with those computer generated flashy opening credits it already felt tonally off for me and i was like uh-oh to me when i watched this Batman Forever mm -hmm. last week. Right. One, I'm incredibly embarrassed for Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> right. Incredibly yeah. embarrassed because he is going Crazy. ape shit yeah. in the movie. He's, he's dialed way the fuck up and he is, <laughs> he's not even recognizable as right. Tommy Lee Jones. You know, who he is and who he built himself into be, you know. Right. <laughs> All those heroics for nothing. No more riddles, no more curtains one and two. Just plain curtains. <laughs> 
Well, I, I mean, if there's something that really frustrates me about this film, it's that it's tonally schizophrenic. It's all over the yeah, place in yeah. tone. And that's what's hard to grasp onto because what are we watching here? Are we watching a campy Adam Westy type of Batman? Right. When dealing with powerful criminal elements, one can never be too well prepared. Are we watching a dark, broody kind of Batman? Just like my parents. It's happening again. Monster comes out of the night and scream two shots. If they're trying to mesh the two tones, they just don't do it well. It just seems cobbled together, in my opinion, as far as tonally, it's all over the place. Yeah, right. And I personally don't think that Joel Schumacher deserves all of the blame in his feet for the tonal problems of this film. Yeah, I think yeah. that Warner deserves the biggest part of that blame because, right. look, they wanted to sell toys. They wanted to merchandise the crap out of this thing because it's a big, huge property that can be sold to kids. So mm -hmm. they wanted cereal boxes and Dorito bags and McDonald's toys and sheets and all of that stuff that comes with a property like this. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing they said was, we can't have a movie like that last one, which is dark and over-sexual and all of that stuff because parents will complain and we took a lot of shit for that. So yeah. let's bring this one in lighter in tone and just let's have fun and playful and all of that stuff. And that was the mandate and Joel Schumacher was hired to do that and that's what he did. Yeah, yeah. There was a feeling that Batman Returns didn't live up to some people's expectations. Some families felt it was too dark. I did not agree with them. I mean, that's not my business really, but I felt that my job was to, in a sense, reinvent, refresh the Batman franchise. I think if you look at the story for the film, Ugh. there are elements. I mean, it's already leaning more towards a lighter tone anyway, the story is. Right. But if you get in there with a director who wanted to make it maybe a little darker in tone and more realistic performances in it, yeah. I think it could be done. I just think that the minute Jim Carrey comes hot off of the success of things like Ace Ventura and The Mask, mm -hmm. then automatically your tone's going to go another through-the-roof kind of loony. Right. And so to you have to match that tone with everyone else in the film and I think that's what happened I think they got in there Jim Carrey came in was doing his shtick for the Riddler and I think Joel Schumacher unfortunately maybe pointed at Jim Carrey's level of acting and said hey everyone match that tone because we're making a cartoon kind of thing right and that's why in my opinion you get the kind of performance that you get out of Tommy Lee Jones in this because if you take Tommy Lee Jones and you point at Jim Carrey and you say be more like that mm -hmm. I think Tommy Lee Jones is like, I don't know how to be like that. That's not my arena that I play in as an actor. So yeah. he's out of his element immediately, and he's amped up to a level where he shouldn't be, in my opinion, again. <laughs> but that's why I kind of wish that uh, Joel Schumacher would have told Tommy Lee Jones, play it serious and see how those two things play against each other. Because Jim Carrey's already ramped up and everything, so if Tommy Lee Jones plays it dark and serious and stuff, oh, yeah. maybe it would have felt off tonally, but maybe those two tones together might have balanced it a bit more, for me anyway. If the bat wants to play, we'll play! <laughs> I will say on rewatch that the one thing that stuck out to me was Chris O'Donnell playing Dick Grayson in this film. He seems like the only actor in the film that is giving a, I'm a a real person in a real world <laughs> yeah. and I'm not a cartoon right. and I give him kudos for that man because to be surrounded by all of this other stuff the way everyone else is acting <laughs> in the film yeah. that takes uh, that takes talent I think look at my dad told me that every man goes his own way well, my way goes to Two-Face. To me, it feels like you are. He, he, he specifically said, I wasn't really looking to, you know, Joel Schumacher mm -hmm. kind of way. I'm, I'm not really looking to copy in these scenes the early, early Batman television show with Adam West, 
We weren't really. I mean, I don't think Akiva and I ever discussed that. It right. reads like an Adam West TV show. Yeah, in part. It sure. reads exactly. I don't like you are either lying through your teeth when you say that, <laughs> or you're com- somehow you're not seeing the fact that you basically copied. Right. The Riddler has left us a clear indication of where he intends to strike next. Because he doesn't know the material, you know, like the, through comics or anything like that. Even though he said he did, but right, um, a lot he said that. It seems like I only know it from you know watching Adam West when I was a kid so mm-hmm. uh and it just kind of like uh instinctually comes out that way right subconsciously yeah, yeah. because it's practically that boom bam they're mm-hmm. even kind of like doing some of those camera angles that they did on the right. tv show yeah you know so don't tell me you're not <laughs> copying adam west show <laughs> It was to make a living comic book. That was our goal. Well, I believe there's even been some reports later on in the years from people who have worked on the Batman films, like Jim Carrey and a few other people, have said that Joel Schumacher, before every take on a Batman film, would say, all right, everyone, remember, you are in a cartoon. Yeah, right. Yeah, see, and that says it right there. That that tells you the, the mood you're setting, that he's not mm-hmm. taking this serious. Right. Ugh. Exactly. This is all one giant death trap. Kilmer looks good in the suit. Yeah, no, he does. He looks very Batman-y. Right. The minute he, he does, he does not represent Bruce Wayne to me at all. Mm-hmm. He's too collegey. He's still too real genius at that point. You know what <laughs> right, I mean? And he doesn't yeah. even look like he's three years older than Chris O'Donnell. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It, it, it is, <laughs> and he's obviously putting in about a ten percent effort. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, and and his chemistry with Nicole Kidman is oh, awful. Yeah, that's one of the things that in reviews it says that their chemistry is really good i don't get that at all because i feel that their chemistry is just not there's no spark to it at all no no well i wish i could say that my interest in you was purely professional you're trying to get under my cape doctor (laughs) a girl can't live by psychoses alone it's the car right chicks love the car I mean, there are a lot of people out there who Val Kilmer, that is their Batman. I mean, hell, the co-creator of Batman, Bob Kane, said that that was his favorite Batman. So, you know, everyone has their own opinion, and that's great. He's just not my Batman for sure. I just, he looks great in the suit, but the minute he opens his mouth and starts reading the lines, I just, I don't get it. I can feel the script in his hand (laughs) as if he's reading it right there. I mean, I'll point to a scene near the end of the movie when Bruce and Alfred are figuring out that last riddle that the Riddler left for them. And the way that Bruce Wayne says Edward Nigma's name in that, Uh just, ugh. Mr. E. Nigma. Edward Nigma. And then as a comic book fan, there's a scene in the film that, okay, aside from the tonal issues that's wrong with Uh Two-Face, they have a scene where Two-Face flips a coin because he wants to kill Bruce Wayne. And it lands on a side where it won't let him kill him, so he just keeps flipping the coin until it gives him the side that he wants, Uh which is totally against what that character represents. And that was maddening. I was just like, I know it's a weird, geeky thing to be mad about, but I hated that. Don't kill him. But getting back to my story of when I first saw this movie in the theaters, like I said, I went with some friends, the movie ends, and then as we're all walking out, all of my friends that I went with, they loved it. They were going on and on about it, and I was the only one that was just like, oh, man. Like, <laughs> I'll put it this way. The first Batman, when that came out, I saw that movie the most I've ever seen a movie ever in theaters. I saw that movie eight times in the theaters. Right, Batman right. Returns comes out in 92, and I see that like six times in the theaters. Uh-huh. This one I saw once. And... <laughs> So, like, three or four years goes by, and I decide, you know what? Maybe I didn't really watch that movie on its own terms. I'm going to watch it again. And I watch it. And like I say, there's things about it that I like. There's Mm -hmm. visuals about it that I like. But I just – I cannot get into the 
the rhythm of the film because it, for me, like I say, it's tonally just all over the place, and I it just starts to annoy me a bit. Yeah, right. But I mean, like I was saying about Batman Returns and how I think of that film as kind of an operatic tragedy. Yeah. If I had to describe Batman Forever in the same kind of way. It would be like a loud rock concert where the instruments weren't tuned correctly, mm -hmm. but it's one of your favorite artists. And unfortunately, you just went to see them on a night where they were playing kind of shitty. <laughs> oh. And that's what Batman Forever, I guess, works out to me in that particular description. It shows. Yeah. Well, and then now we have to talk a little bit about this Batmobile. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because yeah. it's an evolution of the Keaton one, but it's more, mm, yeah. even more phallic. It's yeah. more, you know what I mean? It kind of loses its haunches and its toughness. Right. And yeah. it has like this underlighting behind it. Yeah, weird. Where, yeah, so it's like a skeleton-y thing. Yeah, no. Yeah, and, and what's weird, what I read was that uh, they went to the gentleman who was the artist who designed Alien for the first Alien, H.R. Uh, uh, what is it? Geiger. Geiger. Right. So they go to him and they're just like, can you do a redesign on the Batmobile? We want an all new Batmobile. And so he accepts, he takes it, he does his redesign. And when he gives it back to them, they're basically like, well, we can't do this. This is way too phallic. <laughs> well, that's what, that's what he's known for. Exactly. <laughs> what has he ever done that isn't? Sexual, right? That's exactly. That's the guy's whole fucking catalog. Right, exactly. And so what's weird is, so they don't take his because his is too phallic. But his design has that skeletony thing that you're talking about, where you can see through and all the underlining and stuff. Mm -hmm. They got another designer to come in, and I guess told him to base his off of H.R. Geiger's. Maybe I'm not sure, but. It ends up looking very similar. Oh, okay. But, yeah, I really didn't like this Batmobile at all. Right. At all. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah the, the big bat wings off the back oh, of it gosh. and all that stuff. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just, it looks cheap and plasticky. Yeah. And, 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 and like, the wheels don't look legit anymore. And, right. Yeah. It's, it's Everything's starting, real neon in the back lid. Yeah, and, right. Uh, and, yeah, this is that cartoon element to it, right? Right, yeah, totally. Yeah, and you're starting to see, you see a little bit of the carryover of those what I was talking about in the Metropolis um, mm -hmm. statues in the background. Now you're starting to see these huge statues and it gets even worse than the next one. Yeah. But, um, no, totally. It's all over. You can definitely see they're taking a lot of the elements that Burton had built in his two movies and then just mm -hmm. dialing them way the fuck up to <laughs> a, an obnoxious level. Right. One of the things that was successful for us in Batman Forever was giving the city a personality by putting some faces and figures male and female all through the city so there wasn't just monolith structures but were the human form on some level and it was a hit wasn't it yeah yeah it was 336 million dollars gross worldwide it was the highest grossing film of 1995 that's what's so embarrassing to me what the fuck were people thinking if that movie was a hit <laughs> well i think it shows that people weren't thinking tim <laughs> <laughs> right. no, I, I don't want to keep bashing on the film i mean a lot of people said that they went in and they uh, turned their brain off watched it had a good time i mean even in the review for siskel and ebert they 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 mentioned something like that i liked it while I was watching it and as soon as it was over it didn't mean anything to yeah. me and mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. the days have gone on it's meant even less if that's mm -hmm. possible mm -hmm. I'm recommending the picture because I can't deny that while I was watching it, I thought the dialogue was very funny so I'm sort of caught in the middle I mean obviously people shut off their brains that don't even like to film because that's what happened to you you can't even remember a lot of things about it even though you just watched it <laughs> and I, I think I even had to, I was getting sleepy so I I, I, I was like oh, I better oh when you watch it okay. finish it later and then I, it was like one of these things where I turned it off and uh -huh. and then I'm like you know we got we're doing that Batman show soon I got to <laughs> 
did I finish? <laughs> I couldn't even tell right. if I had finished it or not. Right. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. And so I go back and I finish it. And it, yeah, it was like another 30 minutes left. And I'm like, oh, geez. Right. Well, one positive that I will talk about the movie is that once uh, Burton and Keaton left the film, Danny Elfman went with them, and so they brought in a new composer named Elliot Goldenthal. Mm-hmm. He did the music, and I really loved his music that he did in 92 for uh, Alien 3. It was really dark and atmospheric, so I thought, oh, he would be a great choice to do a dark, brooding Batman kind of thing when I, I didn't know what the movie was all about. So his score does have a, a, a good Batman theme, and it works on different levels. And he also has some areas of the score that's very moody and atmospheric. But unfortunately, it seems like a big direction that was given to him was make it kind of bold and extravagant. And it goes a little too big on certain areas for me. Whereas, you know, Danny Elfman, of course, is bold and, and, and theatrical. This was a little too... Um, Circusy? Uh, well... I mean, I don't know. I, Danny Elfman is kind of circusy too, but uh, it's, um, it's like Cirque du Soleil versus circus. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? I just think that maybe he was directed to be a, a little bit more light and fun and broad, and it's it just doesn't hit the heights that I think that the Danny Elfman was. I think there's potential in it too, but unfortunately, I just don't think he was given the creative opportunity to. I sort of made it my business not to go back and relook at the movies. I didn't want to be influenced um, too much by another director's work or another composer's work. And um, uh, the similarities uh, is, is that we both used a, a large orchestra. Uh, and the rest is dictated by character. Just reflect what they see on the screen and take it from there. Then if you'll look at the pattern of power breakdown here in the first movie, the Batman 89, Warner had all the power. So it had a Prince soundtrack along with a Danny Elfman soundtrack. But when Tim Burton had all the power on the second one, it only had that one Susie and the Banshee song. That's it. No poppy soundtrack. But this one, Warner's back in charge. So you better believe they're going to have a big soundtrack with two big hits on it. Right. Yeah. Kiss from a Rose was. Oh, man. That video played like crazy yep. back mm-hmm. in those days, just over and over. Yeah, yeah. it was on the radio yeah. all the time, and the music video played all the time. Right, right, right. And then they also had that U2 song, Hold Me, Throw Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, which I think played over the end credits. Now, up till 1995, Batman films always had three years in between them. So Batman comes out in 89, Batman Returns 92, Batman Forever 95. Mm -hmm. But I think that Warner Brothers saw that Batman Forever did so well, so they thought, oh, we got our franchise back on track. So let's bring the next one out even sooner. I had hoped very much after the success of Batman Forever that the studio would allow me to do Frank Miller's comic book, Batman Year One, which is one of my favorite Frank Miller comics. But that is not really what my job was. And I'm not saying that I didn't come into this with my eyes wide open. I did. Now, heading over to the comic book side of things real quick, if we go all the way up to December of 1996, a very important and influential comic book comes out, and that is The Long Halloween by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. Okay. 
So by the end of 1995, Warner Brothers already knows that Batman Forever is the biggest movie of that year. So they have already greenlit the production of the next Batman sequel titled Batman and Robin. I really understand why now some sequels can be disappointing to the original, and that's because there is a push to make everything bigger and more, 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 and everybody wants to make more money. Yeah, but of course, Val Kilmer famously was like, fuck you, I'm not coming back. And <laughs> right. He said, I'd rather go be a jerk on the island of Dr. Moreau and then do the same. <laughs> right, yeah, which is much, much more dynamic. <laughs> right, well, I mean, I guess you can't fault him for not coming back. And I kind of, I applauded him for not coming back, I think. <laughs> right, right. At least he knew. Yeah, right. But anyway... Uh, part of any production of a movie means that you have to cast the roles, and there's a lot of roles to cast in this film, so uh, read us off that list you have over there, bub. Keanu Reeves could have been, the, again, he was you know, right. in contention for both of these Schumacher movies, and right. uh, David Duchovny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I can see the angle, but I don't really see the... Nicolas Cage. Right. Nicolas Cage right. is interesting well. because he ended up almost being Superman later on. Right. Uh, John Travolta? Uh, no. Are you serious? <laughs> Obviously, I just read that for the first time, people. <laughs> uh, Brad Pitt, which I can kind of see because he's not hit yet. Right. And Russell Crowe. Well, this was in 97. It was the same year that L.A. Confidential comes out. Okay, okay. So he gets hit. He was smart and took L.A. Confidential. <laughs> what was that one, though, he did with Denzel with the where he was... Uh, oh, virtuosity. Virtuosity, right. So, I mean... <laughs> that was the that, year before. Okay, so that's what I, that's what I was kind of getting at. He's, like, okay. still kind of riding that. I haven't broke big in America yet. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. So I could see Russell Crowe at that point. I mean, now it sounds stupid. Right. Right. So before we have Schwarzenegger on the list <laughs> <laughs> for Mr. Freeze, we have Ed Harris. Right. Which, knowing Ed Harris the man, right. I don't see him being like, yeah, I'll do that. Right. But looking at Ed Harris the man, uh, right. I think, yeah, he's a, he, he's a very good Mr. Freeze. He looks right. kind of like Mr. Freeze. And Warner Brothers did creep show, so they were probably like, hey, he did that goofy dance. Maybe he'll actually do this. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, after Ed Harris is Anthony Hopkins. Totally see why they would think. Yeah, because of the Silence of the Lambs thing. Right. right. Patrick Stewart, which I think that's way more Mr. Freeze than... Oh, yeah. ...than Arnold Schwarzenegger by any means. Right. Uh, uh, Michael Caine or... Mm -hmm. Michael Caine. I think that Michael Caine would have had a hard time doing it, though, because of that clunky suit. He would have had to use a bloody double. <laughs> yeah. And the only way that I know how to do it is to find you a bloody good double. <laughs> Michael Caine. Um, and then, of course, finally again, Robert De Niro, which <laughs> I still don't, at this point, I don't see it happening. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows with that guy? Poison Ivy. Mm. Who could overact who in this list? <laughs> yeah. Can anybody overact more than Uma Thurman? I think it's possible. And here's why. <laughs> Julia Roberts. Ooh, yes. Demi Moore. Meg Ryan. Mm -hmm. Sharon Stone, I, which again, I don't see her saying yes to that. Right. Not at this point in her career. And no. Sandra Bullock. Gina Davis, <laughs> Susan Sarandon again, uh, mm -hmm. Goldie Hawn, Cindy Crawford. Oh no! 
Janet Jackson and again Madonna. She could have mm-hmm. been uh, Poison Ivy. Poison, I think Madonna probably is the best fit of all of those. Probably, yeah. You know, for what that movie was, she probably would have been. She would have been better than Uma Thurman. I don't know. Uh, Cindy Crawford really nailed it in Fair Game, so I think. <laughs> Fair Game, yeah, <laughs> right. Her and old Billy Baldwin. <laughs> That's why she's been in so many movies since. Oh, I know. There are so many great movies in her filmography, it's hard to choose one. (laughs) I didn't decide to do an action movie first. It's just that the movie I decided to do first is an action movie. But uh, wasn't it that uh, uh, ER was a Warner Brothers property, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And so uh, when they find out that Val's not going to come back, they just they're like that heartthrob guy from ER is over there. Yeah, that heartthrob guy (laughs) from ER. Let's just put him in this. Right. (laughs) You know, I think him being... You know, he had a long, slow road to mm-hmm. to stardom. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, uh, yeah. I think because ER kind of came late in his life, and he had been a struggling actor before that. Mm-hmm. So I feel like this, even as shitty as it was, he's like, well, I'm under contract, one, and mm-hmm. two, I, 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 I'm hungry. Right. I want to be a movie star. When I got Batman and Robin, I was just an actor getting an acting job, and I was excited to play Batman, you know? And what I realized after that was that I was going to be held responsible for the movie itself, not just for my performance or what I was doing. And so I knew I needed to focus on better scripts. The script was the most important thing. You can't make a a good film out of a bad script. It's impossible. You can make a bad film out of a good script. And it's definitely something you got to look at in perspective, of course, because these days, uh, movie stars and TV stars are on the same keel. Today. Yeah. Today. Yeah, right. But back in 1997... Mm-hmm. It's like TV stars go over here. Yeah. Movie yeah. stars over here. We are over movie here, stars. Yeah, we are movie stars. And yeah. don't so change anything. There was barely any. There was only like maybe three or four examples <laughs> right. of crossover, you know. And I'm sure it's very seductive and alluring to get an offer like that because you got to think this is the company that you're working for is the ones that put out the highest grossing movie of 1995. Mm-hmm. And now they're offering you the lead part of that franchise. Of course you want to do it. You'd be stupid not to. Mm-hmm. What I think George brought to it was a gentler, kinder, more compassionate, less tortured, less self-obsessed Batman. And I know some people really didn't like that, but I really don't see where the harm is. And also, it's a Batman movie. And it's funny to look at the movies that George Clooney was doing in retrospect, of course, because he was doing this movie, Batman and Robin. He did The Peacemaker at the same time, which isn't a bad movie. It's just very action-packed, Hollywoody kind of thing. He did uh, One Fine Day, a rom-com. Three Kings. No, that one came later on. So, oh. yeah. But uh, after he does these films and has some flops, then he starts thinking about story only. So then you'll see him do things like Three Kings. And he does Out of Sight. And he does over brother and dustle dawn no that yeah. one was before batman oh it was yeah that's what got him the part apparently but oh, okay by what joel schumacher says he said he saw the poster and then drew a cowl on his head and said oh he'd make a great batman yeah i can't place any of the timing on yeah. any of these movies well that's that bcad thing i told you about earlier yeah i know <laughs> right 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 so all of those things that you're designing they're ripping them out of your hands because they're going to make the molds the molds for them usually have to be made in asia So you have to give them the designs far in advance so they can get these molds made to make the toys made so the toys will be out when the movie's coming out. So everything that we did was, can you make it bigger or can you make it better? And I'm not criticizing anyone. I 
signed on to do this. I was doing this job, but that was part of, that was a major part of the job. If you could take the disaster that is Batman Forever, which is already <laughs> dialed up to 11, right. and turn Batman and Robin up one more notch and, you know, make it a 12. Right. Because mm -hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger comes in as Dr. Freeze, and uh, right. Uma Thurman comes in as Poison Ivy. Right. And we have, you never see his face, but this kind of crazy, huge <laughs> bodybuilder guy right. uh, playing Bane. His name was Jeep Swanson. He, this <laughs> guy was so fucking big, so fucking roided up right. that he literally died of a heart attack before this movie even came out. No, no, no. He, he lived to the, uh, he was at the premiere and then I think he died a few weeks after it came out. Yeah, Okay. That's the thing that cracks me up about these films is that they already have Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy as their villains in this already really cramped movie that all the characters are vying for screen time. And mm -hmm. they're like, let's put one more villain in there. And right. so they pick Bane, which is a very popular uh, comic book character. And the film iteration right here in no way matches that character, except that he hits a button and gets bigger because of this Venom stuff. Oh, okay. <laughs> Enough monkey business. We've got work to do. I mean, the Bane in this is basically just a uh, monster henchman. He's a Frankenstein henchman in the film because he barely says any words, and when he says them, he says them in a big, dumb, lumbering way. Yeah, and all the while, uh, a lot of the surrounding characters are remaining the same. Mm -hmm. Like, the same actor who, who from the 89 Batman has played Alfred through all of these mm -hmm. things. Yeah, Michael yeah. Goff. Yeah, he's still playing Alfred. And that's the, that's the thing, is that they have these actors that are from the Burton films carrying over into these films, and then also some throwaway lines that are connecting it to the Burton films, which yeah. is frustrating because tonally, those films just don't match. You like strong women. I've done my homework. Or do I need skin tight vinyl and a whip? Pat Hengel is Commissioner Gordon through the whole thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's a little bit more like Police Chief Wiggum in this film, though, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> right. Your fingerprints are just like snowflakes. They're both very pretty. Yeah, and I think, I, if I remember correctly, Bob Kane and his wife make an appearance, right? Well, uh, Bob Kane was supposed to make an appearance in all of the films, but for one reason or another, he never ended up making an appearance in any of them. But his wife makes an appearance in Batman Returns, and then she is Gossip Gertie in both Batman Forever and this film. Right, right, right. Yeah. Boys, please, let's show some gusto. And Chris O'Donnell's the one returning superhero character. Right, right Robin. Yeah. Yep. First movie, things felt much sharper and more focused. And it just felt like everything got a little softer on the second one. The first one, you, I felt like I was making a movie. The second one, I felt like I was making a toy commercial. So I guess word travels fast in the product placement business because once Batman Forever came out and made McDonald's and whoever else attached to it millions of dollars, then all of these companies are coming at Batman and Robin and saying, like, sell our Doritos and sell our Coke products and sell our American Express card. Uh, never leave the cave without it. And then, of course, on the movie merchandising side, every little contraption that a character uses or rides in the film, yeah. that ends up being a toy. And so that's what Joel Schumacher said he ended up learning the word more toyetic, which means that what you create makes toys that can sell. I think what happened to Val in that shutdown, mm -hmm. the realization of like, oh, this is a piece of crap, is what <laughs> happens to George. There's a minute there that you go, well, do I want to be the third Batman in the fourth Batman picture? That can be a little worrisome because the other three were very successful and the only thing you can do is screw it up. That's really the only result, you know? Because George is 
fucking terrible in this movie. <laughs> he is terrible. And he's like, walk. He's just like, hey, Freeze, I'm Batman. <laughs> you know, he's just like talking his way through the lines. There's no effort in anything. And uh, he's artistically bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Why are all the gorgeous ones homicidal maniacs? Is it me? Actually, one of my favorite scenes that represent exactly what you're talking about is uh, there's a scene in the movie where Bruce is dedicating this telescope to Gotham. Oh, and right. that uh, Gossip Gertie woman who Bob Kane's mm. wife plays yeah. is in it and asks him if he's going to marry his girlfriend, who in this movie is played by Elle McPherson looking hotsy totsy. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but when uh, this Gossip Gertie asks Bruce this, the way that Clooney plays Bruce stumbling on his words and stammering is as if Joel Schumacher went up to him before the shot and said, hey, stammer in this like you're the worst actor ever. Yeah, you can practically <laughs> see the punctuation coming out of his mouth. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's it's bad. Are you going to tie the knot? Uh, marriage? Uh, uh, marriage. Uh, uh, you want to give me a hand here? I mean, I think this movie proves that Warner was hoping that they could just serialize this thing each time they did it. Mm-hmm. Take the blueprint from one film, move it over to the next, add some villains and water, and boom, there you go. Yeah. Uh, it opens the same way with the cheesy credits and the Batman getting ready and walking out to his car and saying a quippy line. I want a car. Chicks dig the car. This is why Superman works alone. The, the, here's the annoying part. The quippy line mm-hmm. is taken from Batman Forever. Right. The chicks dig the car thing. Right, yeah, I know. That was in the, both movies. <laughs> you know, and, and, like, They're even recycling lines. Yeah, no, exactly, I know. That's what I'm talking about. It's become serialized, and yeah. instead of using important screen time for all of these characters that they have crammed in this movie, they're instead using like five minutes or whatever it takes to watch Batman and Robin get ready to go fight crime. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm asking you, friend, partner, brother, will you trust me now? And the end is the same way. It's serialized. They're running with the bat signal behind them, and they run towards the camera until it goes dark and the credits start rolling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if they really wanted to keep in tradition, they should have just had the announcer come in saying, Stay frozen to your furniture. Tomorrow, same bat time, same bat channel. Well, some of the things we're leaving out, though, it, uh, the ego of Arnold Schwarzenegger at this point is oh. ridiculous. Yeah, well, he's at the top of his game right here. Yeah. He's on par with Stallone's ego from the 80s. Yeah, right, right. It's, it's the most spectacular and well-written script that I've ever worked on. It's, it's, it just has really great writing in it. And so, therefore, I think people really get, will get off on all those speeches and just uh, dramatic stuff and Shakespearean stuff. He has his own group of writers that he ha- brings along with him to be mm-hmm. able to write his quintessential ice-related right. one-liners that he has to have, you know, like... Uh, you are not sending me to the cooler. Stay cool, bird boy. All right, everyone. Chill. Yeah, God. <laughs> well, you know, my opinion is is they're bringing in Arnold Schwarzenegger just like they brought in Jim Carrey because those guys bring in a certain kind of demographic of audience, and that's what they want. And yeah. so they're not bringing in Arnold Schwarzenegger to play a part. They're saying, hey, we have this costume that we want you to put on, but you still be Arnold Schwarzenegger, and you say your Arnold Schwarzenegger things, and yeah. that's all we want from you. Thank you. Let's kick some ice. 
There's that, and then Uma Thurman, you know, who. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, her yeah her actometer on this thing is dialed to fucking 180. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like the right. the springs are popping out of the gauge <laughs> on her actometer. She's so turned up, and it's like doing this kind of. May West kind of thing, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and no, it was like the producers told her, "Hey, Michelle Pfeiffer did that May Westy swagger and voice thing. Do something like that." Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, I think they pretty much told everyone in this film, "Hey, leave subtlety at the door. If you're gonna do this movie, you go fucking big with it." <laughs> and and everyone did. Yeah, right. <laughs> Gotta go. So many people to kill, so little time. Well, we can't leave this out because there's another fucking character introduced into the movie, <laughs> right. and that's fucking Batgirl again, mm-hmm. and it's played by Alicia Silverstone, mm-hmm. and right. she literally, all she does through the whole movie is push motorcycles in and out of the garage. <laughs> right. That's all she does. She's just like... <laughs> She's a bad girl. Yeah, pushing motorcycles in and out of the garage. That's it. I suppose you had a minor in motorbikes also, huh? I couldn't resist. I mean, it's just so beautiful. I just took it out for a little spin. I'll clean it up in the morning. And, and there's that hilarious scene where they, at the end, whether Batman and Robin are fighting with everybody, and then she shows up in the outfit. Right, in a Robin mask. Yeah, with a, yeah and she goes, <laughs> Bruce, it's me, Barbara. Like, no shit, it's you. <laughs> right. It looks exactly like you. It sounds exactly like you. You even got your little cute little Alicia Silverstone pouty Pally lip going yeah. on. George Clooney's like, I didn't recognize you because you weren't pushing a motorcycle onto the scene. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I feel bad for Alicia Silverstone because she took a lot of shit when she did this movie. And she was new in Hollywood, had like a few hits like Clueless and mm-hmm. something else. And then she had a string of flops, I believe. So this was probably sold to the hilt to her by her agent or maybe the company. Like, yeah. you do this and then you're going to be aces. Right. I think that's what happened to everybody. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, she ended up having to take a right. lot of shit for this. And they were commenting on her weight and all of that stuff. And uh, I just, I feel bad because I think she did good with the material that she had it wasn't great material anyway so yeah. what are you going to do with it but she did fine right <laughs> i think that the suits are the whole thing the suit is my character <laughs> the suit and the mask yeah because there's no it's really really hard to speak at all let alone act in in the costume i didn't i never really thought like what's my motivation in this scene <laughs> when i was in the suit it was like how do I speak? Who gave I... you? Yeah, and uh, we have to talk about that Batmobile because oh, right, yeah. it gets worse. <laughs> it, it, it takes everything that is unattractive about the other one and dials it up even more. With the underlighting, <laughs> now it's like the, in the nose, it's like spinning, like supposed to be like a jet engine, I guess. Right. But it, you, but it, you know what it reminds me of is one of those little like Fisher Price popper lawnmowers with the you know where you're walking along and the little balls pop around inside the glass dome that's what the fucking Batmobile looks like to me the wheels are like big and plastic and I'm like this is such a travesty you see I I still look back you know at this point Uh for me you know as cool as the the Keaton one was Mm -hmm. it's pretty cool yeah I'm still like holding that Adam West one up on a fucking yeah I prefer Keaton but you know because these things are making just making a joke now Totally, yeah. I mean, if you took the design of the Schumacher Batmobiles back to 1966, tried to pitch that to the Adam West TV show, they'd be like, we can't use that. That's way too silly. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
course the movie ends up being what it is and Clooney has gone on in interviews to talk about what it was like to do it in retrospect and, and it's quite funny to hear some of his stories. Let me just say that uh, I actually thought I destroyed the franchise until they brought it back. You know, they, somebody else brought it back years later and changed it. But well, the suit's brutal. You know, at the time, particularly, it weighed like, I don't know, 60 pounds, and it takes... Uh, there was a director named Joel Schumacher, who's a very funny man, very tall, very sort of eccentric, and he would direct with a speaker and a... Uh, with a microphone and a speaker. Usually directors will come up and say, hey, I'm gonna... He'll be like, okay, and you'd hear this, you know, <laughs> giant booming voice bolted into this suit. I can't move. And he would direct you, like, as if you would have some emotional scene. He would go, okay, people, all right, uh, uh, George, you know, your parents are dead. You have nothing to live for. <laughs> but I hate that he got the raw deal just because he went on after that movie came out, of course, and, and it didn't do as well as the previous one, so everyone was calling it a bomb and all of that stuff. And so he was going on and on about uh, how he had destroyed the franchise. And I hate that he, he, you know, if he really felt that way, if it wasn't just the shtick that he was doing. But uh, he should not think that he's the one that killed that franchise. No, Joel Schumacher did. <laughs> right, yeah, well, and Warner Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> the merchandising and licensing became a very, very important part of the making of the film. But I also have to say, I was an adult, I was awake, and I went along with it. So I'm not pointing a finger at anyone else and saying, they made me do this. And as far as the late uh, Joel Schumacher here, he took a lot of shit from a lot of Batman fans for what he did to the franchise. I mean, he mm -hmm. got a lot of love, actually, for Batman Forever, and right. so he rode that way for a while, but then once this Batman and Robin came out, it didn't do as well. Everyone considered it a flop, but it still made money. Right. It just didn't make as much money as the previous ones, and so as for Batman and Robin, I can actually have a lot more fun watching Batman and Robin. <laughs> it's undoubtedly a bad film, yeah, but right. I have a lot more fun watching it more than I do Batman Forever, just because I feel that Batman and Robin stays in the same tone. Mm -hmm. It's like we're going to be wall-to-wall -wall goofy. <laughs> right. <laughs> and right. so for that, I can appreciate it. Like I can watch an old episode of the Batman TV series, which it's very reminiscent mm -hmm. of. Yeah. I think both Schumacher movies have some striking visuals and some really good things in it here and there. Visually, I, I think that... Anytime the dialogue starts coming in, that's when it starts falling to the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, so, But there's some visual stuff in there that's great. If there's anybody watching this that, let's say, loved Batman Forever and went into Batman and Robin with great anticipation, if I, if I disappointed them in any way, then I really want to apologize because it wasn't my intention. My intention was just to entertain them. Winding down to the last few things to mention about the movie is that, uh, of course, uh, Warner Brothers wanted to be a big hit again, so they had a big poppy soundtrack, and on this soundtrack, they had Smashing Pumpkins. And then last but not least, I wanted to mention something that I think is pretty dang cool about Batman and Robin, and that is <laughs> the... You think there's something cool from Batman and Robin? <laughs> I do. I, I am. I, my ears are peeled. I want to hear this. Okay, so there's these makeup artists that were on this film called Jeff Don and Jim Kale, I believe, and they did the Mr. Freeze makeup. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, Mr. Freeze makeup is exceptionally good in this because when they get up really close on his eyes, you can look at his skin and you can see that it's both 
really shiny and sparkly mm -hmm. and at the same time dry and brittle mm -hmm. it, it's a really good texture that they got going mm -hmm. and the colorization the eye contacts they got everything is really 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 great on the makeup for mr free so that's one of those things that right. i just love right. in this film okay yep well we'll let you have that Ah, oh, thanks. That's very ice of you. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to need a bigger cave. So even though in 1997 Batman and Robin came out and didn't do as well as Warner Brothers, I guess, was hoping it was going to do, there was still talk about they were going to do a fifth version in that franchise. Oh, uh, right. Also directed by Joel Schumacher. Some reports say it was supposed to be called Batman Triumphant. Uh -huh. Other reports say it was supposed to be called Batman Unchained, which just sounds like a porno. Right. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, that version was supposedly, allegedly supposed to have the Scarecrow in it, played by Nicolas Cage or Jeff Goldblum in some reports. Oh, uh, that's not, that's not gonna work, yeah. The studio wanted me to do a fifth Batman, which would have been my third, which would have featured the Scarecrow. And I just couldn't do it. I just, it wasn't really in me anymore. But Warner wisely chose to abandon that franchise and move ahead for other things. And one of the next things that you see in 1999, they bring a new animated show from the makers of the Batman animated show. They do a new Batman show with Kevin Conroy coming back, but it's called Batman Beyond, set in the future with old, decrepit Bruce Wayne training the new Batman. All right. You built that company, and now Powers is making nerve gas there. You gotta do something. You're Batman. I was Batman. Well, guess what, folks? We did so much talking on Batman in this first episode of season three that we had to split it into two volumes. This is volume one. Volume two will be released on April 20th, so come on back and see how this whole show ends up. And like they say in the old 1966 Batman TV show, Same bat time, same bat channel.